looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. Let's throw down. Ooh, what is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real, episode 489's podcast for hardcore cinephiles, where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. But today we're going to be tackling RPGs and video games and TV and radio and film and literature because we are diving into the world of the great H.P. Lovecraft. And guiding us on this journey, we've got returning guest now, Victor Rodriguez, who was, I guess, was on Wrong Real back in maybe August or so for Berserk. And Victor, he is a writer. He's got a new book of short stories, but he's also a soundtrack producer. Worked on things like Hellraiser 2 and video games like God of War. He, you're basically you're my kind of guy. You're a renaissance man with a lot of different interests. And I feel like your wide range of interests is perfect for today's topic. So welcome back to Wrong Real. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much for having me back. And uh, I have to say I've been looking forward to this for a couple of weeks now. Very excited. Well, we've dipped our toes into the world of Lovecraft before on the podcast. We did one years ago with Bradley Cornish just about the documentary about Lovecraft, which was fun. And then we did one with Andy Webb about some of the Stuart Stuart Gordon films. But I like how today we are throwing out just a giant fishnet to see what strange, forbidden, nameless horrors we might drag up from the seas <laughs> for this discussion. We're going to be ta- tackling anything and everything related to Howard Phillips' Lovecraft. But before we get into all that, tell people a little bit about yourself, because obviously I alluded to some of your uh, your work, but I feel like you're probably a better man than I for making the pitch about what you're all about these days. Well, I um, uh, my money-making job, my main job is... Um, uh, being a talent manager, I manage a, a film and TV composer uh, based in Los Angeles, and uh, I also write horror fiction on the side um, and a little bit of other genres too, including uh, crime and uh, fantasy. And um, I just published a book uh, called *The Sound of Fear*, which is a collection of twelve short stories about sound. And the uh, first one, which takes place like a block from my old apartment, and down on Bleecker McDougal, I was reading it a couple of days ago. I was like, "This is 
Like my, 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 my old barrio, I moved like eight blocks north about a year and a half ago, but it was giving me some flashbacks from my days for the original Wrong Reel headquarters. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a coincidence. But, um, but yeah, I, uh, that, uh, that story sort of uh, was, was birthed um, because I went to a new music seminar in New York around that area in uh, 1991. And uh, my friends and I were almost mugged. Nice. <laughs> the city probably, was still being put together. Probably some of my long rail guests. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, that really made an impression on me. And um, you know, I love New York dearly. Uh, and uh, I've, I've I've never lived there. I've always gone there on business. Um, but I've always had a great time, a thrilling time every time I was there. And uh, I guess that story just came out of it. <laughs> yeah, this city's definitely got a pulse. I went out hard last night, and I was a little worried that. I, I, perhaps I'm a foot hard, a little too aggressively down the gas pedal because we started like martinis and steak and went and saw Joey Diaz perform, who's one of my favorite comedians, and he just like blew the roof off. And we just we really got after it. But I was like, you know what? Feeling horrible and hungover is probably the best state to be in to discuss Lovecraft because <laughs> it's so grim and morbid and depressing in a lot of ways. And uh, I feel like maybe I, I feel like how he probably felt toward the end of his days when he was like racked and riddled with cancer throughout all of his guts and uh, coming to an untimely uh. demise. But yeah, I feel like when you're talking about the Northeast, sometimes being a little depressed and a little hungover is the best state to be in. Yeah, um, yeah, I think uh, that uh, Lovecraft, of course, you know, he died penniless, and um, uh, although he did have a strong circle of friends that were other writers that he was uh, propping up, and I think one of the reasons he's such a fucking rock star now is because he let other writers use his creation to do their own writing. Yeah, and you know, the descendants, uh, the literary descendants of Lovecraft, are pretty famous dudes like yeah, Robert Block and Lieber and so on and so forth. Yeah. It seems like all the pulps who came like 15 years after him, like in the 40s and 50s, were playing in his sandbox. But the correspondence he was maintaining with all of his, uh, with all of his like kind of the up and coming writers, yeah, they really, they saved him from total, complete, utter obscurity. But there are not a lot of writers who will do that where they basically encourage people to play with their toys where decades later you'll have people like Neil Gaiman still playing in that sandbox. It's a, it's a unique thing. But as a, uh, just as a way of kind of continuing to plug and promote some things you worked on, you sent me a little audio test before we started recording just to test your new audio uh, software, and you read a portion of his Call of Cthulhu, and before we started recording, I was complimenting you for your very chilling reading style. I was like, whoa, like maybe instead of doing a podcast, I just let Victor read us a couple of Lovecraft stories, but you, uh, then I cut you off. You were telling about talking about how you do public readings of your stories sometimes. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, when I, I moved to to, um, to what I call, appropriately enough, the strange high house in the mist um, up here in in Seattle about six years ago. I'm a Los Angeles native, uh, and um, uh, when I was here, uh, my wife and I were both working out of home, and um, we were a little adrift from society and human contact. So when I was writing, I came across a group of people that met at. Uh, an event called Noir at the Bar, and most uh, most major cities have this. It's a it's a like a franchise, and um, if you ever want to go check out some crime writers and uh, you know occasional horror stuff around October, and uh, grab a few drinks, it's an awesome thing to go to. Uh, everybody does live readings, and I've been doing that for the last couple of years. And um, well, you know, I'm not a, a 
a super great public speaker, but I'm getting better. And um, I appreciate the compliment. And, you know, reading Lovecraft is not always the easiest thing to do, but uh, he does have a way of transporting you to his world with the words. And I think that's another reason for why his continued success has continued to haunt us. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, uh, I, I've like many other writers, I've written a few stories in the Lovecraftian style, um, or at least, uh, with uh, some callbacks to him. And, um, you know, I, I firmly believe, uh, Lovecraft is part of the, what I call the trilogy of, uh, uh American horror writer royalty. Um, you know, starting with Edgar Allan Poe to Lovecraft, uh, to Stephen King. I, I feel like all the rest of us spring from those three dudes and between the three of them you cover like what 180 years of uh of, of fiction or something like that so yeah yeah it's still going yeah absolutely yeah lovecraft i was kind of i came late to lovecraft probably wasn't until like the early 2000s and i was reading stephen king's book dance macabre which is all about like the shows and the books and things like that that he loved in the horror genre. And he kept talking about like the rats in the walls and the Dunwich horror. And I was like, all right, I've got to rip this Band-Aid off and just check out what this Lovecraft guy is all about. And it was a, it was a little bit of a, maybe perhaps like an obstacle at first because while he wrote in the 20s and 30s, he's kind of writing in a style that might have been appropriate like 100 years earlier or at least aspiring to because he was obsessed with – the, the, the fiction and the manners and the code of conducts from b many bygone eras. But then once you fall under the spell, like he has this remarkable ability to feed you just enough information to stimulate your imagination. And then he withholds just enough information where the horror gets amplified. And obviously that changed toward the end of his career where he started providing more details, like at the Mountains of Madness, it's very heavy on detail. But whereas earlier, it's like, oh, it's too nameless. It'll drive you insane if I even describe it. And it's like, oh, well, is this like, is this a cop out or is this like a really beautiful, like stylistic trick? But I feel like whether you want the detail or you like the illusion, I feel like he's got enough fiction early in his career and late in his career where you can kind of scratch both itches depending upon what you're in the mood for. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and yeah, I do think his style changed. He has uh, basically three periods. He has sort of the early stuff. Um, the middle stuff, and then the Cthulhu mythos at the uh, at the end of his career, where he really started getting into the fantasy aspects of his mythology, world building, and all that. Um, and uh, yeah, I think what you just said summarizes it perfectly. You know, he grew up reading, um, you know, ghost stories and Edgar Allan Poe, and um, also fantasy stuff like uh, Thousand and One Nights and the Odyssey. And when, like, what was that Lord Dunsany? Is that the person he was also really interested in? It was basically, and like Neil Gaiman described him as an author who is inspired by the New Testament and nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, yeah, and and if you look at, at Lord Dunsany, um, his style is very similar to Lovecraft's. Like, you know, he was a gentleman writer, uh, you know, wrote a lot of gothic horror and, and, you know, fairy fantasy stories and stuff in the 1800s. And um, uh, Lovecraft was really into that stuff and used that for his more realistic, scientifically brand, uh, branded horror as he developed his career. Also, I loved how, like, I mean, this, this, one of the best, I, I've watched this documentary four or five times now, but it's readily available on YouTube and it's just called Fear of the Unknown. And you basically have all these filmmakers and writers talking about how inspired they were by his stuff. But like hearing Neil Gaiman break down how the fiction works and how prior to Lovecraft, most horror 
there was a status quo that most likely would be restored by the end. And you typically had your stories dealing with, you know, old English estates and things like that. But it's like Lovecraft basically dragged horror into the modern age where it's like, you know, it's the 1920s and people are still exploring the unknown corners of the globe. But you allow science, science fiction and discovery to come into things as opposed to only dealing with the very old. You're dealing with the very, well, it's a weird thing where it feels very modern, but at the same time, you're dealing with these threats that come from millennia if not millions of years ago before humans were even on earth and this idea of these cosmic beings who have almost no regard for humanity it's not like they're interested in us we are like ants that they're paving over to build a highway like they just do not do not care they're indifferent and cruel and i like how also his mythos wasn't like he wasn't like he sat down and said i'm going to create this extraordinary mythos but even just starting with dagon his very first published story and then all the way up to like the shadows of Ensmith, it just kind of slowly but surely organically fell into place with this pantheon of horrible entities. And while you don't necessarily see connectivity from like Dunwich Hard to other things, they all feel like they could take place in the same world. Like none of them contradict each other. They all feel like part of a greater whole. And I'm not really aware of any author, any other author that's quite like that. Yeah. Um, I, I think that that's that's exactly one of the things that's so brilliant um, about Lovecraft's writing is that it could be our world. You know, the the protagonists of his stories are always these super intelligent dudes or scientists that have an insight into one particular area of reality, and they delve too deeply and find exactly what you just described, like these these ancient monsters that have been living under the earth or in the stars for millennia and know that Earth exists and have decided up till now not to destroy it. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I just love that, um, that you could, you know, that sort of the reading of the stories themselves is sort of a, a, a sanity blasting experience because it's like, ooh, what if that's true? You know, and I think the, the realism of it uh, really helps the way he structured the the tapestry of all his stories uh, when you weave them together, uh, and uh, and it works it works brilliantly. And a lot of writers have done that since, but um, he was one of the first. So. And also, I think something about like his bleak, almost nihilistic view of things has made him more popular than ever. Now, a hundred years later, like in the twenties, I mean, when he was writing like uh, Herbert, when he's writing like the Herbert West uh, Reanimator stories, he was doing it like five bucks per installment. I mean, like his biggest payday ever was when he got like two hundred and forty dollars for like the Dunwich Horror. I mean, like this guy was not killing it, even though he had come from something resembling an aristocracy in Providence, Rhode Island, but the money was had all run out. And so it's a weird combination where he's got the manners and the arrogance and the lack of desire to do physical labor of like someone belonging to the upper class. But at the same time, he doesn't have any of the money to back it up. And so he's, he right. is, he is left in this kind of strange, precarious position where he really struggled through so much of, of his life. But uh, it's just it's ironic that here we are in 2019 where you have all these movies come in. Like suddenly you have a production company that's like releasing Color Out of Space and that's doing Dunwich Horror next and wants to do a shared universe. And there's something about, like this is 100-year-old fiction. Like 100-year-old movies don't suddenly explode into popularity all over again. But something about like just these creations, as Neil Gaiman points out in the documentary, there's a bumper sticker you always see during election time, like vote Cthulhu, why settle for the lesser of two evils? (laughs) (laughs) It just never seems to go out of style. It's almost become like, Greek mythology or Marvel comics or just you have these 
these divine otherworldly fictional settings that just somehow take on a life of their own and then they, they, they become immortal. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, well, I th another reason for, I think, Lovecraft's continued success is that uh, he was visionary. You know, I think that his um, sort of innate, his personal fear, uh, sociological fear of the other, um, and um, really reflected what uh, Americans went through in the 50s with, like, the second Red Scare. And I think that sort of gave life to um, writers that were writing in his in his style, uh, and that kind of kept him, kept him alive. But I think that those sentiments are still, I mean, because we're human beings, uh, you know, he just wrote about something that is innate in all of us, whether we choose to confront it or run fear from it into a, a, a blessed dark age, as Lovecraft would put it, or, um, you know, decide to philosophize it in some way. Well, let's maybe start shifting gears towards some of these adaptations because it takes a long time before people start adapting his work into other forms of media. But obviously in the 40s and 50s, you've got a couple of like short story collections and a lot of people were basically doing everything in their power to resurrect interest in his work. And then, of course, obviously it was, like, it was around and inspired so many great novelists in the 20th century, including Stephen King. But the first thing on your list, well, I, I, I guess what we're going to do today is go through your top 10 list of your favorite adaptations into different forms of media of Lovecraft's work. So, but I think your number 10 is the earliest in your list. So what have you got for us? Number ten, uh, I um, the first, the very first Lovecraft story I ever read um, was a story called Pickman's Model, and um, it um, it was uh, a tremendous experience. I challenged myself. I think I was maybe in sixth grade when I read it, um, and I thought I was being all fancy by you know reading a, an almost unreadable writer to me at, at that point, uh, and um, I really loved the way he sets up the shock ending, like that got me prepared for a lifetime of short story appreciation and horror appreciation. And by some strange coincidence, it also happens to be the first Lovecraft story I ever heard read aloud as a performance. Yeah, I was in Atlanta, Georgia in, um, in the mid nineties to, uh, to be on a panel at something called Dragon Con. And, um, uh, there <laughs> were still some going people to huge cost. It's like, the, if you like cosplay, Dragon Con is your jam. Dragon Con. Yeah, that was, it was quite an experience. You know, Mark Hamill was there and some people from the Atlanta, uh, radio theater, I think they were called <laughs> were there and they were big Lovecraft fans. And this guy opened this huge prop book and reads Pickman's model. And I was like, wow, yeah, this is really cool. Uh, so yeah, uh, it's, um, the adaptation that I love the most of Pickman's model was a, um, an episode of night galleries TV show that, um, I think started in the late sixties, but, um, this episode premiered in 1972. And, uh, it's basically about an artist that, uh, lives in on the Eastern seaboard of the United States. And, uh, he paints really scary, realistic, 
<laughs> paintings. <laughs> and um, the horrific truth of, of the paintings is that, of course, his model is real. Like the monster that he's painting is from a photograph that he took of a creature that exists. Well, what was cool is that this episode was readily available on just the NBC website, and I had never seen a single episode of Night Gallery. And I, I, as soon as I started, I was like, "Oh my god, this is a Rod Serling show!" And like he's he's looking a little more seventies, like the sideburns are a little beefier, the hair is a little froyer, but he's <laughs> still got it. He's still got everything. Like if you love Twilight Zone, you need to check out Night Gallery. But I, I loved how the intro almost felt like Buck Rogers with like you know the circle spreading out with all the imagery and I was like this must have been copied quite a bit in the 70s just because that seems to be like the quintessential TV 70s opening but I love the way he introduces it and I love the framing device how it's present day and people think they have found the, the the area where he was creating his paintings and they think they have found one of his paintings and then you get the flashback back to when he meets a model and he's very mysterious and he's always wearing gloves for a reason that becomes unveiled toward the end but yeah I just love the idea that Beneath Boston, you have this subterranean race that likes to breed with human women, and uh, you know th- their day is coming where they their, their, the forces might be unleashed on the surface again. And I, I thought it was a very effective little twenty-five minute adaptation, without a doubt. Yeah. Um, well, you know, uh, yeah. I, I mean, obviously, a lot of filmmakers uh, that. Uh, grew up reading Lovecraft, went on to create really great Lovecraftian works that I don't know if we're going to have some time to talk about or not. Um, Well, it's almost like the Lovecraftian movies and shows are much better known and more popular than the Lovecraft adaptations. Like Alien is the quintessential Lovecraftian sci-fi horror movie, but it's not based on Lovecraft. Right. Yeah. I I think that... um, one of the things that uh, Lo- I don't think Lovecraft created, but he certainly popularized uh, in literature was uh, something called the weird, which is um, just sort of a a sensibility. It's not really a genre as much as a um, sort of a, an artistic sensibility uh, to how the story unfolds. And, um, you know, that like the man having a very small place in the universe is part of that and just coming across a foe that is unknowable or unbeatable in some way and just escaping with your life is the uh, the goal. It's at, the at, best at case the scenario. Animals. Insanity yeah. or death is more likely, or both. <laughs> exactly. But, I, I mean, I thought, now this is uh, my personal opinion, but uh, I thought that uh, there was a, uh, a reference to Pickman's model in a, a recent movie of a couple of years ago called The Overnight. It's a comedy movie with Jason Schwartzman and Adam Scott. Oh, I saw that. <laughs> I did. It's like, they ended up having like an orgy at the end, but yeah, it, yeah. yeah. I, I saw it was like a, it was like a uh, it was like a day and date release, like straight to video, video kind of thing. But it played in some theaters. But I actually even posted a written review of it on the Wrong Real site when the Wrong Real site was still relatively new. Oh, awesome! Um, well, I I was uh, you know I saw that in the theater, and I remember thinking there's a scene where Jason Schwartzman, who is an artist, takes um, Adam Scott back to his studio. Yeah, it's like a room full of portraits of his own asshole. And he's like, you know, you get all, right. or, or different people's assholes. He's like, uh, you get a prize if you can guess which one's mine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and uh, you know, Adam, Adam Scott's like, uh, wow, these are these are all really nice. Like, what are they? Because they're so close that they kind of look like flowers. <laughs> yeah, they become abstract. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and um, the, the line that Schwartzman uses is almost exactly like Pickman's, Pickman's model, where he's like, these were all painted from life, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I was the only one in the theater that got it. Like, I was just like laughing out loud to a silent theater. Oh, that's great. <laughs> uh, the scene I remember most vividly is when the girl 
takes the other girl to this like massage parlor and just like allows her to look through a hole in the wall while she gives a guy a rub and tug. And it was, um, <laughs> I think, you know, it was, it was, it was worth watching and, uh, I haven't, I haven't revisited it since, but I found it amusing. I always like it when people are willing to explore some taboo sexuality and that sort of thing. And so I, I, I admired what they were attempting to do. Absolutely. That it, it is it is sort of a horror movie in a way in that it's social horror. It's like, you know, people that are all buttoned up like get uh exposed to, you know, these swingers and people that are totally willing to do whatever's on their mind sexually and, and Adam Scott's shot. got a bit of a physical deformity that is very re- resembles <laughs> the castle freak in many ways. Like there's there's some overlap there. Indeed, indeed. Yes, uh, there is some crossover there. I didn't even realize that. Um, but uh, that's just how wide and uh, deep the tentacles of Lovecraft go. <laughs> nice. Oh, and I, I forgot to mention that the um, the makeup artist used the original mold from the creature from the Black Lagoon to make the arms and legs of the monster in the Pikmin's model. So for people who are like their horror history and also the exterior of his home is the Munster Mansion from the Munster. So they were reusing whatever supplies they could get their hands on. Yeah, the uh, come to think of it, the creature does look really cool in Pikmin's model. So I was wondering how how they executed that on TV. So. Yeah, I guess my only knock against the episode would be that part. This is what makes Lovecraft so difficult to adapt in the film is that part of the power of Lovecraft is withholding details. And in a movie, it's essentially visual storytelling. How do you suggest? And like obviously, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is famous, where it implies the dismemberment, but you're not really seeing it. Or like with Jaws, you're not really seeing the shark. Like there are tricks you can do visually, and I feel like that's the real mystery or the real problem you have to overcome as a storyteller making a film or show or video game of Lovecraft is how do you capture the unknowable without revealing what is unknowable? And like even mm. like John Carpenter talks about color out of space. Like how do you make a movie about a color that's undefinable? Because eventually you get to put it on on the screen, yeah. it, it, which makes them notoriously ad- difficult to adapt. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there's there, I've read a lot of criticism of Lovecraft's writing. And of course, he was essentially an amateur, just an extremely practiced amateur. Like he had no formal education in Yeah, in largely English uneducated, apart from just devouring books in his grandfather's library for 12 years. Right. He just read and wrote his ass off until he got it the way he wanted it. Um, and um, I, I think that uh, part of the what makes him so great are those descriptions that, you know, they kind of pop out in your mind, even though it's like, what did I read? Like, how did how did how did that happen? It's, it's like he's a, a wizard uh, on the page uh, uh, from time to time. Well, especially with stories like Rats in the Walls, where they finally are exploring this underground world. And this guy's going down this tunnel and he's like reverting to this primordial state. And he's writing his words as they change into this ancient forgotten language and starts eating his friend. And but it's like, obviously, this is something some people like to ridicule. It's like, well, if you're going crazy, you don't just like keep writing. Or if you're scared to death, you're like, oh, it's coming up the stairs and it's going to get me. Ah! Like you don't keep writing. <laughs> Eventually you would stop. But it, he casts such a spell over the reader, you can just kind of surrender yourself over to it and just and just buy into it. And I, I, I get if, if your idea of literature is like, you know, is William Faulkner, then perhaps H.P. Lovecraft might fall shy. But if you mm. want writers with unbridled imagination 
breaking new ground that's never been broken before, then he's kind of unparalleled in a lot of ways. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think his his uh, pervasiveness in society today is proof of that. Um, I think that Clive Barker is another one of those guys. Even though he, you know, doesn't come from the American school, he had a, a British, you know, classical education. Um, but uh, his uh, imagination—he's the only other guy I can compare to Lovecraft with how prolific his imagination was. Like how yeah. many complete ideas he had that uh, came out in literature. I've only read Hellbound Heart and Damnation Game, and like I love them both so much. That I'm almost afraid to read anything more because I'm worried they won't measure up. I'm like, ooh, these are perfect. Is it even possible that he was able to sustain this for more books and short stories? But at some point, I'm just going to have to just to do the deep dive on some more of Clive Barker's stuff. Worth it. Worth it. Yeah, he's, he's great. He, a lot of his later stuff is great, too. All right. Well, number um, nine, what do you got for us? Number nine, uh, it's, this is a video game called Call of Cthulhu, Dark Corners of the Earth that came out in 2005. And um, yeah, speaking of England, this was, uh, this was done by a British developer. And um, if you've played this game, if you're listening to this podcast and you've played this game, you know exactly what I mean. The, uh, the European sort of scale of, um, of getting used to the difficulty of the game is extremely steep. You know, you have, there are three types of curves. There's like the American curve, the Japanese curve, and the European curve. And the European curve, basically that caters to PC gamer audiences, is like yeah, it's hardcore gamers. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just no very, filthy casuals allowed. Yeah, kind of complicated at the beginning, then it becomes super complicated almost immediately. Um, but and it's that's like a, the way... I never played it back in the day, but I watched like a part, like segments of a six-hour playthrough, and it's it's a survival game. It's a mystery game. It's kind of a first-person shooter, but it's not like your weapons are that good or that you can take much damage. So you want to avoid combat at all costs. But it uh, draws upon beautifully so many different ingredients from so many short stories, from the Shadow over Innsmouth to obviously just the name Call of Cthulhu. But mm -hmm. I can't believe that I, I missed out on this because it came out on the Xbox and I tried to download it for the Xbox One and it hasn't been like upgraded or whatever. You can't. It hasn't been made available for the Xbox One yet. But I was killing myself that I couldn't play this. All I could do was watch somebody else play. It, but they were really good at. It. They were able to clear the whole game in six hours. 
I was like, well, at least I'm going to yeah, I was like, at least I'm going to get to see all the all the crucial scenes. But I know that because of the difficulty level, it was a massive flop when it came out. Although some people regard it as one of the finest survival horror games ever made. Yeah, um, I I am embarrassed to say it probably took me about sixty hours (laughs) (laughs) playing certain parts of it over and over and over again. But um, but you know. it, it's my favorite. It's my favorite adaptation of The Shadow Over Innsmouth. There have been many um, films, TV. You know, it's a it's a famous story, and it's probably his most um, intense uh, in in terms of action. Like it's got a chasing. Like I, yeah. usually, like usually, read Call of Cthulhu. It's like what is this? It's like just like pieces of like investigations and scraps. But finally, Shadow Over Innsmouth is like, oh, I'm going Michael Bay, uh, giving right. you an action scene at the end. And also toward, yeah. toward the end of his career, it's one of his last published works while he was alive. Yep, yep. and it, it shows. I think as a stylist, like I think it's one of his strongest stories. And yeah, that, that I think what we're talking about is that scene where he's, you know, the narrator realizes that the town are in in cahoots in some way, and they're coming to get him, and he could smell them through the door. What a great image that is like that he can smell the fishiness of them through the door and he's in this ramshackle hotel and he's got to like change one of the door locks to the other door and uh they uh re uh revisit that that scene in the game oh hell yeah i watched that yeah because you're constantly running and hiding in tunnels and they're looking for you but you don't have any weapons all you can do is duck and be stealthy and try to stay on the move and like slide things in front of doors but you're constantly just trying to stay away from people because you have no way to defend yourself (laughs) Yep, exactly. Um, well, anyway, it's a great game. I, I mean, uh, unfortunately, it's a little inaccessible, uh, especially these days that um, it's it's uh, out of out of uh, the. Uh... Oh, go on YouTube, look up Call of Cthulhu: Dark Corners of the Earth playthrough, and there are a couple of people who have un- who have loaded uh, full playthroughs. But maybe there's a, a good opportunity to press pause and ask you a little bit, or remind people about, out there about your career in gaming. So you obviously enjoy playing games, but just for like, I, I know you obviously you worked with the on the soundtrack of God of War, which is a game I played all the way through and loved. But just uh, give people a quick uh, summary of your career in that world before we move on. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, uh, I appreciate that. Um, Yep, I grew up playing video games. I guess I grew up with an Atari 2600, and um, and then when uh, I started my career in music business affairs, my first career in the late 80s, and uh, went all the way through the early 2000s with that, um, I had eventually graduated to video gaming, uh, to clearing music and working with composers, music supervising the scores of video games, and... Um, I had the great fortune to work on a couple of really key titles. I worked on uh, Gran Turismo 3, if you're into uh, uh, any of those uh, you know, high-tech, uh, super-realistic racing games. And uh, then I did God of War, which was uh, a massive eat, hit. <laughs> eat, breathe, and sleep God of War for, uh, for uh, like two or three years. <laughs> and um, uh, I, I absolutely loved working and playing uh, that game after it came out. It was uh, it was so good that it you know working on it for years didn't spoil the experience of playing it for me. And um, you know David Jaffe, the director of God of War, and I um, both grew up like loving that movie Heavy Metal and Raiders of the Lost Ark and Lovecraft. And I think you see those influences in the game for sure. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I was a music supervisor on that game and then I was the music supervisor on, um, 
Grand Theft Auto Vice City. So uh, I <laughs> went completely the other direction into Miami Vice territory, and uh, I helped clear all the music on that on that title. Did you ever miss that world? Uh, I've heard no, that because... the world of video games, it's so unimaginably exhausting that it it's like you spend your whole life praying for the opportunity to work in the video game industry, and then you work so hard you never get to play another game again the rest of your life. <laughs> it's it, the it, curse. Like... Yeah, no, looping this back with Lovecraft, uh, I mean, it is sanity blasting to work in the video game industry because of the lack of sleep and, um, you know, amount of hours during crunch time, which uh, a lot of studios abuse. <laughs> uh, usually, you know, crunch time should be a couple of weeks, but uh, sometimes it stretches into months, and uh, that's when people go nuts and uh, and quit. And just but, break. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, interestingly enough, um, as an honorable mention, I'd like to uh, to, to just uh, plug this game, uh, Eternal Darkness, that I, I had nothing to do with, unfortunately. But um, it is a GameCube game that came out in the early 2000s, which is extremely Lovecraftian without the Lovecraft name on it. It's basically just concepts of this family that goes through the ages. And, uh, you know, you can lose sanity. Um, uh, I think the three stats in the game are sanity, magic, and health. Uh, gotcha. so, and they're all equally important. Uh, and, but if uh, you ever uh, want to watch a, a fun playthrough, I'm, I'm sure that's, uh, that's a good one to, to see. I, I love watching playthroughs, but usually I need at least a little bit of experience with the game just so I can appreciate what, what they're doing. But I think it's also important to call attention to the fact that when someone says something's Lovecraftian, it doesn't just mean tentacle porn. Tentacles are at play in some of his stories, but it's this overwhelming sense of fear and dread and anxiety and just the futility of resistance and how cosmic forces are just going to blast us into atoms and there's nothing you can do about it and so like love being something being lovecraftian is so much bigger and grander than just something slimy kind of crawling out of the water and wrapping around your ankle like people will say that stephen king's short story from skeleton crew the mist is lovecraftian mm. and it is but you have to dig a little deeper than just the tentacles that come in and pull people away into the darkness Right, right. And I think, uh, yeah, the, the, the horror stories that came before, like uh, Poe and Bram Stoker, you know, uh, Dracula is it is an, uh, an impossibly like an inhuman foe, but it's still one guy. You know, it's still a guy that, you know, lives in a certain area. And, you know, if you're reading about him and in kill Texas him. or whatever, they take him yeah. out. So <laughs> exactly. Um, you're not going to take uh, out Nair Lothotep or however the fuck you pronounce it. Like, that's, you can't even pronounce their names. How are you going to defeat something? You can't even pronounce their fucking names. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, even like the priests and the acolytes of the people who are trying to summon these creatures are unknowable, nameless, gibbering horrors. I mean, like we'll get to the Dunwich Horror in a bit, but it's like they're not even dealing with the real threat they're dealing with like the half-breed kind of children avatars the real threat would wipe all life clean from the face of the planet like and that, those are the kind of threats that we're dealing with yeah yeah way way over the top um but you know uh playing eternal darkness like that was the first serious game that my wife and i played together um and it was before we were married we, we had just started living together and um learning how uh you know that sort of I loved that game because it was, it was a great game and, and also because I could, you know, make all these Lovecraftian references while we were playing it. And, you know, Nancy got to learn all about that. But sh just sharing the controller in this one person game was a huge bonding experience for us. It set us up for marriage. I mean, honestly. Very nice. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's that's one of the things that horror on the positive side can do, you know, besides entertain you is um, is just to draw people closer that have had the same experience. 
Uh, and I, I, I thoroughly believe that that's one of the, the most valuable things that horror gives to society, just for the storytelling of it. Beautiful. Well, on along those lines, let's rip into your number eight. Uh, for number eight, I had um, the Dark Adventure Radio Theater version of the Dunwich Horror, which is my personal favorite Lovecraft story. Let me tell you something. Someday you folks will hear a child I love in is a calling its father's name on the top of Sentinel Hill. Armitage. What's happened, Professor Rice? Somebody's broken into the library. It's Waitley. He's going for the special collection. The boy's turned against me. I don't understand him no more. You're safe in here with us, dear. I'm not safe. None of us is. You need to go home and get some sleep. No! You don't understand what this means. We have to know what it says, all of it. Bring me the Necronomicon. No, not the Latin, the Greek. It was in the dark of September 9th that the real Dunwich horror broke loose. Hello? hello? There's Jesus! Elma? Elma, is that you? What's happening? Help. Oh my god! No, What's he gonna right. do? This, this is madness! This is madness! We can't hunt something you can't even see! Your brother's here! Now what? You men stay here! Professors Rice, Morgan, and I are going up that hill. What are we supposed to do? Pray. The, the story is just an unbelievable mash of ideas from the, you know, the, the psychopomp whippoorwills that like carry the souls of people to the uh, afterlife, um, which he uses as a beautiful framing adv uh, device the, to the, the rural setting in sort of this unknown part of the mountains and the East Coast uh, and um, some really horrible horrific um, inbreeding and cosmic horror uh, revelations that come later in the book to a, a group of protagonists, you know, led by the um, the professor, uh, Professor Armitage, which, uh, you know, speaking of adaptations, uh, it's not really an adaptation, but a reference to uh, Armitage, I thought, um, you know, Jordan Peele in Get Out names his, uh, you know, the white patriarch of his girlfriend's family is um, is Dr. Armitage. Very you know, nice. Nice Lovecraft wraparound there. Well, also, um, I was able to find this on iTunes because like, initially I went to the website that creates all these all these audio plays, and it was like 200 bucks to get like the entire set. I was like, oh, I love Lovecraft, but I don't know if I want to spend 200 bucks on all these radio productions. But then I went on iTunes, and sure enough, they'd break them down story by story. For, so for a couple of bucks, I was able to listen to it. But I love how they recreate the 1930s, almost like Mercury Theater radio experience with like audio crackle and like commercials for Fleur de Lee. And how it's kind of kind of tinny. It's it doesn't feel. I mean, because I listen to a lot of audio fiction. Like I've been listening to ones on the The Witcher recently, and they add, mm -hmm. they add like dramatic music and different voices, and it's like a, a first class production. But it feels brand new. I, I love their attempt to create something that feels period appropriate for this particular production. And I'm right there with you. This is I don't know if it's my favorite Lovecraft. It depends on my mood, but it's certainly in the mix. And it's one of the few ones that actually has kind of like some heroic Indiana Jones type of characters who aren't completely helpless <laughs> before the onslaught of these cosmic forces. I mean, they are helpless to a degree, but there, eventually there's so many of them that they are able to achieve some measure of victory by the end. But the first half of the story and the second half of the story 
it's almost like <laughs> you think you're reading the Dunwich Horror, and it's not until halfway through that it kind of has a break. And like, oh, now we're at actually to the real Dunwich Horror. It's really underway. It's really been unleashed. But yeah. I, I find the story to be one of the finest horror stories that I've ever come across by far. Same, same. You know, um, yeah, I, the, the people who made this uh, Dark Adventure Radio Theater, um, you know, the, the narrator's Sean Branny and the, uh, the guy that plays Earl Sawyer is a guy named Andrew Lehman. They both have awesome speaking voices and um, they, uh, they really, I think they knocked it out of the park with this. Um, their productions are usually great and we'll, we'll get to another one of their productions a little bit later. Um, but, um, but yeah, the, the, oh, well, the other thing that, um, that, uh, you know, maybe we want people to know is if you buy the CDs of, of this, um, of the, these dark adventure radio theater things, they come stuffed with props like maps and stuff. And, and I think, um, you know, Lehman and Branny are, you know, they're sort of historians and Lovecraft fans. So they have painstakingly recreated all these period, um, you know, photographs and newspaper clippings and stuff that are completely fabricated. But I haven't even owned a CD player since like 2002. So I don't know if I've got that option. So yeah, it's got, it's got to be, it's got to be something that I can pull out, pull out of the air. Yeah. These have to be online. Like there has to be an unboxing online or something like that, but they're really worth looking at. They're, they're just so artistically beautiful. Um, but uh, but in any case, yeah, highly recommended. And um, and this is also part of the best story that really locks down a lot of really interesting details about the Necronomicon because like part of Lovecraft is that over time he introduced all these ingredients that would kind of come back around. Whether you're talking about Miskatonic University or Arkham or the Necronomicon, of course, the Elder Gods, and it's these details that people have seized upon and introduced. So even if you have your characters attending Miskatonic University. You can tell a story about whatever the hell you want, but just having Miskatonic University as part of the backdrop is what ties all these stories together. And we have this character who's looking for a more complete version of the Necronomicon because he's basically trying to find a ritual that will allow him to bring his father into this world. (laughs) And he's getting some resistance and they won't let him check out the book and he's getting pissed off. And But if you want, for people who just want the raw data, like the lore... Dunwich Horror has a lot of the, the the key lore for the overall Cthulhu mythos. Yeah, um, yeah, that's that's a really good point. Yeah, the Necronomicon I think is one of the things that has had the most life. Uh, one of the creations of Lovecraft yeah, that's had the Evil most Dead. Life. I mean, yeah, it's everywhere. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's it's sort of opinion for uh, any sort of cosmic horror can hinge upon this book that can grant the reader both insanity and unstoppable power. Um, just because of what's written in it. Um, and who, who's the author? Like the Mad Prophet Al something or other? It's like, yeah, I, I think uh, Lovecraft named him Abdul Al-Hazred, um, uh, who supposedly wrote the book after listening at the night to a bunch of insects talking to him in the desert. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but in any case, yeah, he was some sort of powerful wizard. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the book has been translated and it loses a little bit of power in its translation every time like from... Arabic to Greek, from Greek to Latin, from, you know, Latin to English. And it's that English version that's still un- incredibly powerful that uh, that Waitley wants to get for himself at the beginning of Dunwich Horror. And um, and this is, of course, the device that um, the professor and his uh, cronies <laughs> use to try to defeat the horror at the end. And I just love this idea of, like, some hick living out in the woods pimping out his daughter to some otherworldly monstrosity and giving birth to these 
like half-breed demonic kind of godlike children that just go on this fucking rampage. I mean, he was really firing on all cylinders. I guess does so much horror come toward like the end of his second period? Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, I think that's uh, sort of the end of the second, into the third, like the... the... It looked like that year break at one point to kind of regroup. And when it comes back, suddenly it's like, all right, I'm ready right. to write at the Mountains of Madness and like my great works. Right. Yeah. He, he was married for a while, moved to New York and was completely freaked out by being in New York, like amongst the bustling people and, and you know, yeah. that lifestyle. Uh, he was not super married. keen on immigrants. Like perhaps like you could say like, well, if he's a racist then I'm not going to read his stuff, but I don't know if his level of xenophobia would be considered in excess of the times or right in line with the times. But I know for a lot of people, this is a stumbling block where they don't want to read uh, his stories because of that. But like, you know, the the Red Hook horror is a it's a very xenophobic story because he was just horrified by what he was seeing in New York. But what his defenders will point out is that by marrying a Jewish girl and by traveling as much as he did, his views softened over time and he became more open-minded. So it wasn't like he was trapped in amber and his views remain unaltered or he didn't revisit his assumptions. He did modify and soften his views, but I get if some people find that to be a stumbling block, but I feel like his attitudes toward people who weren't from, because it's basically like I've met people like this from Richmond, Virginia, where if you're not from the West end of Richmond, it's like, Oh, Oh, like they won't, they, they won't yeah. talk to those people. And I imagine Providence was very much the same. You have like your one little tiny insular neighborhood in Providence. And if you're not from it, then you're beneath contempt. And I feel like he was a product mm-hmm. of those kind of times. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, obviously, Lovecraft is an incredibly intelligent person, um, undereducated. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, society at the time probably reflected his shortcomings and fears. Like, you know, no one ever said, hey, you know, maybe take a look at that and rewrite it. You know, none, none of his editors uh, gave him feedback on the racism <laughs> that was going into his stuff. And he did sort of turn it around towards the end of his career I would like to think that if he were writing nowadays, um, he would have come to that realization a lot sooner um, that, uh, you know, maybe these are not the best ways to view humanity. And what's interesting is there's so much, um, you know, uh, universally human point of view in his stories in, in the horror of the fact that it's humans versus these unknowable creatures that are completely inhuman. So, you know, what difference does it make? What <laughs> <laughs> you know what you are, but um, you know. Speaking of Red Hook, uh, one of my um, favorite adaptations that didn't quite make it onto the list. Um, there's a, a local writer in, I think he's in in Brooklyn, uh, uh, Victor Laval, um, who wrote uh, the Ballad of Black Tom. It's a it's a novella in 2016 where he uh, he and, and the, you know he's a black writer that grew up loving to read Lovecraft and came to terms with the racism in Lovecraft stories by cranking out this book, which is a retelling of the horror at Red Hook, which is one of his one of Lovecraft's most racist stories, but it's told from the point of view of a black cultist um, that's in the story. So I think what Laval did in in uh, The Ballad of Black Tom is, is absolutely brilliant, where he, you know, sort of on the meta level, he's like challenging Lovecraft almost. He's like saying, you know, there's more, there are things more horrible in the world than a cruel and unfeeling universe. You know, there's the racism of you know, people that, you know, beat up on my main character for no reason and, and stuff like that. So I thought it was an absolutely brilliant story. And I also love his writing. So there you go. Stuart Gordon, the director of Fortress, The Pit and the Pendulum, and Reanimator. 
takes you into the dungeons of Castle Dorsino. Now an American family. Welcome to Castle Riley, lady. Will inherit a legacy of evil. They say the castle is and a master of modern horror. Will unleash his most terrifying creation. Stuart Gordon's Castle Free. There's somebody else here! There's somebody in the castle! want you to search the castle. Giorgio Dorsino, he was never buried. She kept him alive. He's here somewhere in the castle. Reanimators Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton in Stuart Gordon's Castle Freak. Let's dig into one of the big ones because for your number seven, for the first time ever, I had the unique exposure of watching the Joe Bob Briggs on Shutter presentation of this movie, but this is a, a rather notorious movie that you've chosen for our number seven, but one that uh, I think is required viewing for people who like, who have a taste for the rough stuff. Oh, I I love Joe Bob Briggs. I'm so glad he's back on Shudder. Um, it's, uh, yeah, um, the, the number seven entry I had was uh, a movie called Castle Freak from 1995. And, um, you know, this is... Uh, a uh, fantastic horror movie, not as funny as uh, Joe Bob mentioned as some of the other Lovecraftian movie adaptations from that group, uh, Stuart Gordon and company. But that's what makes it so beautiful watching Joe Bob Briggs's version of it because you get commercial breaks where he's providing commentary. So all the comedy that's missing from the film that makes it so grim and un like insufferable for some people suddenly you get this beautiful like two-hour experience where you get the levity with Joe Bob and then you go back into the castrations and the cannibalism and all, all this horrible stuff. So I feel like together Castle Freak becomes what it should have been. Yeah, um, it, it's it's a true horror movie. Um, it's all the way through um, and uh, it's, it's fantastic shot in an actual castle, which I think was the, um, that was the, where the, you know, the owner of Full Moon Pictures lived at the time. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, uh, you know, it's interesting. There's, um, the, the story that the Castle Freak is based on is called The Outsider, and it's probably the best of Lovecraft's earlier stories. It's damn good. And, yeah. I, I, mean, I love Dagon, his first published story. Yeah, but the, they both have great little twist endings at the end. But the outsider is very special. Yeah, um, yeah. I I really I, I think that also psychologically it's really interesting because 
it's almost like Lovecraft taking a look at himself and his own, like the insanity in his family and the own ugliness and, and uh, sort of, um, you know, uh, super introverted life that he led. Um, it's, it's all apparent. Uh, as sort of subtext in yeah, that like story. Yeah, like as racist as he might have been, he re- kept most of his withering disdain for himself. He regarded yeah. himself as like deformed and repugnant and horrible. And his mother thought like, oh, if you pulled his hand too hard, like holding his hands, like his arm would come out of his sock. I mean, he grew up in a really fucked up, unhealthy environment with all these kind of overprotective women that just, were, it was like murderously, overly attentive. And it's, it's amazing he turned out as well as he did <laughs> under the circumstances. Yeah. And you've, no, you feel I, all that in the outsider. Yeah, I, I'm I'm kind of uh, flabbergasted that he created as much literature as he did. Um, but um, you know, I think that he's just one of those people where all the shortcomings and um, you know uh, boons kind of came together when he was writing. Uh, but yeah, I think that he had a lot of inconsistent parenting growing up, where uh, like his mother would. Um, say horrible things about him, but then hold him up as some sort of creative genius. Uh, so, you know, he grew up with this, this sort of, oh, I'm the best there is, but I can't, I can barely function like in, in, in a group of people. So I think that that, I mean, in a lot of ways, those things really prepared him for a career where he was completely going solo. <laughs> yeah, they said he was pretty much at his best socially in his voluminous correspondence with other writers, like amateur journalism, other novelists, other short story writers. There he was really able to thrive. And he would not write a quick text or a quick email. He would write pages upon pages <laughs> to people in the city. Almost like kind of his writing career perhaps might have suffered from overemphasizing correspondence. It's like, dude, maybe you should spend fewer hours a week talking to other writers and actually just crank out like an actual like novel. But he, um, yeah. I guess the closest thing ever came to a novel is like the case of Charles Dexter Ward. But mm. I guess like if you are an introvert and you're t- horrified of anything beyond like your three blocks that you love in Providence, then I guess correspondence is your, your avenue to uh, actually have human interaction. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, uh, one of the, one of the things that I think is really interesting about the, the outsider is, um, that there's, uh, uh, in the movie, there's um, there's sort of a, a correlation between the um, the young the young girl that's sort of you know the daughter the blind uh, daughter yeah yeah the blind daughter and um, and sort of the um, the castle freak which is uh, you know uh, I forget what his what his name was but um, but in any case there's uh, something in Italian right um, the the Italian dude that that eventually becomes the castle freak and I think what uh, you know, I, I was talking to my buddy uh, Andrew on uh, on Twitter the other day. He's uh, at Andred the Blind, uh, and he's sort of a um, a champion of uh, disabled points of view in horror. Uh, and um, I asked him about that, and he said, "Yeah, there's a there's a correlation between the two the two kids." And I'm like, "Oh yeah, I guess there is." Um, so there's there's still details uh, of the story that are becoming relevant these days. Um, but um, I'm looking up Andrew the Blind. Right, is Andrew the Blind? You said for his, uh, uh, yeah, his Twitter handle is Andred the oh, Blind. Oh, Andred, gotcha. Hang on, one <laughs> so second. his name is Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. Uh, all right, very cool. Well, I mean, I think this is while not as strong as From Beyond and not as strong as Reanimator, I think it's underrated. But mm-hmm. I get that people there's this there's one of the most repugnant scenes in horror histories in this movie where it's a weird mm-hmm. mix of cannibalism and rape and like just it's it's I've never seen anything quite like it before where you think you're seeing one thing that's really horrible 
and then you realize the girl's still alive, and the scene becomes way more horrible. Like, it was already bad enough that the Castlebreak is eating a hooker, but then you realize, oh, she's still hanging in there, and that's when you just want to rip your face off and run out of the room screaming, and just, you, you know you're never going to recover. I mean, it's as grim as it gets, especially because this girl... Yep. She's like the hottest hooker in movie history, and like she picks up Jeffrey Combs in some bar, and they go back to the wine cellar, and they just get it on. I mean, this is some pretty hardcore frank sexuality, full frontal nudity. I mean, the mm-hmm. works, and to have it be followed up by a scene of such unimaginable horror, like this creature, like as Joe Bob Briggs describes him, like he's a three D monster. Like under all this makeup, he communicates like loneliness sexual hunger, physical hunger, overall wretchedness. And like mm-hmm. later on when he's kind of cuddling with the blind girl, he's cuddling with her. He wants the affection, but he's also kind of nibbling on her at the same time. And it's, it's almost like when, like, when like, like, a, like a wild dog who doesn't quite know how to just sit there and be pet and they have to kind of bite you. Like it's yeah. a fascinating creature, but it is so disturbing that I think a lot of people just run for cover when they watch this movie. It is. It's a brilliant, wordless performance by the guy that played the the freak. Um, but um, but yeah, I, I don't think we we've be, uh, done the basic summary. But um, in the Outsider, there's uh, just a, a guy. It's it's an unnamed narrator who wakes up in the dark, and he sort of climbs his way out of the prison he's in, and he gets to the surface, and he finds a party. And he walks in, and he absolutely horrifies everybody who puts their eyes on him, and then he horrifies himself, and he realizes he's looking in a mirror, um, which uh, is a, a great, I think, unintended self-commentary right there. But this could have been a story by Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, like, it, yes. it feels like that period, without a doubt, and you can definitely feel the inspiration. Yes, the self the self horror is very uh, very relevant there, and I think what what um, the Castle Freak uh, director Stuart Gordon does so brilliantly is he just um, weaves in another narrative of the family that inherits the castle while this is going on. Um, so well, it's hysterical yeah. how he got the gig. He's like in somebody's office, and they said, "All right, well, we've got the poster, so we're going to make a movie. <laughs> so you can make whatever movie you want, but it's got to have a castle and it's got to have a freak." And he's like, "Okay, well, I think I can come up with something." And yeah. I think what holds this movie back is that it got. Really mishandled upon its release, never got a proper theatrical distribution. And when you watch it now, and anyway, it's what's it? What's that show? Is it called The Last Drive-In? Uh, yeah, yeah, The Last Drive-In with Joe mm-hmm. Bob Briggs on Shutter. The transfer of the movie is stunning. It's gorgeous. And the first yeah. time I saw it was like a straight-to-video pan and scan. It looks wretched. Like you can't even really get into the movie. I couldn't mm-hmm. believe how slick and how great the production value was. Uh, in the in the hands of Shutter, Shutter's done a really good job in resurrecting this movie. Yeah, and I love Joe Bob at the beginning when he's talking about how people uh, criticize him about like accusations of like sexism and how he only likes movies with naked women and he never talks about like naked men. He's like, you know what? Get him naked, whip it out. I've got no problem with that. And he's like, when he's paraphrasing the plot, he says, "Sure, we've seen that story before, but have we seen it with cannibalistic hooker sex? I think not." I was like, this guy is my fucking hero. Like, what do I? Have, what steps do I have to take to become the next Joe Bob Briggs over time? And so I decided I was completely fell in love with his whole approach to celebrating horror greatness. He's great. Well, the, yeah, I, I think that he's got the uh, the tradition of horror uh, to titillate and horrify simultaneously, like the, the extremes of entertainment that has been going on since, you know, ancient Greek theater through, 
Grand Guignol in, in Paris. And, you know, I think that that's the, that's the combination that thrills and chills people. But what's funny is how he likes to pretend like he's some knuckle-dragging shitwit from, like, the trailer park. However, he'll go into, like, some lengthy rant comparing and contrasting all the various, like, beauty pageants in different countries. And I was like, whoa, this guy's, like, he's incredibly worldly and has all this knowledge of different cultures and different languages. So I was like, his persona is very much a charade there's a lot more going yeah. on behind the scenes than he would like to uh, uh, let us let us believe yeah he's he's brilliant and uh, uh joe bob's brilliant and super educated um despite his his persona but um but yeah i think that he he sort of uses that as a sneak attack where it's like whoa that's a lot of pertinent details right there yeah. in the last five seconds absolutely <laughs> now so, yeah. this movie's going to notorious because of an ongoing joke on the podcast the flop house and the the question is whether or not at one point in the movie the uh, the castle freak rips his own dick off and joe bob is talking about this with barbara crampton on the show he's one of the stars in the movie <laughs> about whether or not he was mutilated at one point, like essentially like kind of halfway castrated. Like what, what are your theories on this guy's equipment? Where, is, what, where does his equipment stand at the beginning of the movie versus the end? Because my understanding is that when he was misshapen and mutilated back in the day, like his, his tackle box was one of the first things to go. And he's kind of grown up without one, which is why he's so pent up. But it seems like there's a lot of different room for uh, interpretation on this, or at least, at least there's a lot of debate about this. Yeah, you know, uh, the the Joe Bob uh, Crampton discussion really um, threw me for a loop because I was like, you know, does he have a dick? Like, I, I because I, I when I glanced at it, uh, I thought it was gone. And um, my theory, <laughs> if anybody wants to know, was that when the freak was starving, um, that, was, that was that was like his Burger King. Yeah, he ate all his uh, unessential parts, uh, and he figured he wouldn't be needing his dick uh, all cramped up in there, and uh, that's what happened to it. But um, I could be wrong. I mean, but that conversation with Crampton is so funny, because Crampton's a pretty sensitive uh, individual, and she's trying to have like an intelligent conversation, and watching her face and try not to react in terror and horror as Joe Bob's talking about penis mutilation and castration and sex changes and everything, and he's just he's just going for it, holding nothing back, and she's like, yeah. you can just see like, how do I react, or how do I read this conversation? I just love watching the dawning horror on his face, on her face, as Joe Bob takes the conversation in, in a really unpredictable direction, so I, this whole like two-hour segment on Shudder gets my highest possible recommendation yeah i mean i I think one of the things that's so fucking cool about joe bob uh and his uh, segments is that he does a lot of improvised unexpected shit on his show and um you never know where it's gonna go absolutely Uh, the the only the only kind of earmark that no one was ready for it is that one guy that you hear like laughing his ass off in the background (laughs) because he wasn't prepared for it you know all right. Well, next up, we got some more Stuart Gordon. So what, what, what do you got for us for number six? Yeah, more Stuart Gordon. Um, there was um, a great uh, series on, I think it was Showtime, um, in the early 2000s called Masters of Horror. And um, one of the episodes in, the, in those Masters of Horror, these are like 60-minute horror movies, um, was called Dreams in the Witch House, which is based on the Lovecraft story of the same title. Uh, and basically what Gordon did in his version of Dreams of the Witch House was tell exactly the same story, except instead of some 
asexual older women that are in the Lovecraft story. Young hot women. <laughs> yeah, was it Shella Horsdell or however you pronounce the actress's name? But uh, as they say on Mr. Skin, she gives us all three B's, uh, you know, butt, boobs, and bush. And it's, yep. uh, it is it, it is very impressive stuff. It does make it a lot more interesting. Um, but um, yeah, uh, oh, there was another... Um, that, that just reminds me, uh, I just saw Dr. Sleep recently, and there is a callback to Dreams in the Witch House in that, in the chalkboard room. Uh, oh, wow. In the, yeah, he's like, the, I think the landlord says something like, oh, the last tenant like was this student from uh, this un- the local university, and he had all his math on the, on the, on the chalkboard, but we, we, you know, we erased all that, and that's exactly what happened. Nice. Dreams I in the saw Witch Dr. House. Sleep, and I read Dr. Sleep, but I didn't even catch that. I didn't even make that connection at the time. Um, yes, well, that blackboard is very important in, the, in that story, but, um, but yeah, Dreams in the Witch House, I really encourage people to go seek this out. Uh, I mean, all the Masters of Horror are pretty good, but this is probably one of the top five. Yeah, I think and, the um, Nakashi Miike one's my favorite, but there's a good one by John Carpenter. There are, there are like, if, I guess what I do, two seasons or three seasons, but there's a, a handful that really are a cut above the rest. Yep, yep. Uh, I think my personal favorite I just saw recently um, called Pelts. It's a Dario Argento it's joint. It's really good. Yeah. And yeah. I've seen Pelts. It's fantastic. But also, for people who are horror fans, a member of Horror Royalty uh, worked on this. Greg Nicotero did the special effects, going all the way back to days like Creep Show and now like Walking Dead. But Greg Nicotero, wildly successful special effects guy, who's become basically a producer, but he is uh, one, of, one of the contributors to Dreams in the Witch House. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, well, should we go on oh sure absolutely well now we're getting into the world of rpgs and before we get into this maybe we should just i don't there are a lot of people out there who've never played an rpg in their life before we get into your number five what is your general level of experience with rpgs because for me i was a a dungeons and dragons player from like age eight to like 27 with a few hiatuses from time to time but I, i was a pretty religious AD&D player and like you know went into like second edition and Dark Sun and all this stuff and I also played some Pathfinder right around the time I was first starting the podcast and I even mm-hmm. found a group online and played a little Call of Cthulhu which helped uh-huh. a lot with the with this next choice but what, what what how would you describe your experience with RPGs Yeah I mean I would think that uh, as far as tabletop RPGs go uh, I think that they Call of Cthulhu would be a particularly good one to do online because it's all visual storytelling and the layout of the maps aren't so important. But my experience was, yeah, in junior high school, I discovered Dungeons and Dragons. Um, And actually, uh, I think that was my first reflection from the universe that Lovecraft was important, wasn't just some writer that I knew about. Um, when the Cthulhu mythos appeared in Deities and Demigods, which is like one of the first uh, books they released. But it got removed in the subsequent printings of it. So if you have it, they, if you have one of those, my, my copy of Deities and Demigod does not possess that chapter, but I've looked it up online before. Like, what the fuck? Like, my book sucks. I'm missing all this good stuff. And like, I mean, I, it was like my favorite bedside reading for 20 years, the Deities and Demigods, because it's all yeah. the pantheons from Norse mythology to Arthurian legends. I mean, you, you name it. But I, I couldn't believe that the Lovecraft got removed, or I couldn't believe because I didn't learn about the Lovecraft bit until like five years ago. That I, I basically have like a subpar version of that store of, of that of that compendium. <laughs> yeah, um, well, you know, I, I loved I loved D and got into that for a couple of years, and then Call of Cthulhu came out in like nineteen eighty or eighty one, and uh, I picked it up because I, I knew who Lovecraft was, and I ran some of my friends through that, and um, so we started Call of Cthulhu group, and what we would do is just. Uh, 
like get together at somebody's house and, you know, we would start in at around noon or 1 p.m. and we would just go all night and do like these world spanning campaigns and uh, and then go to sleep. <laughs> well, the big distinction for Call of Cthulhu, for people out there who love D&D and some of like the games that are similar to it, Call of Cthulhu, your goal is not to pass levels and accumulate power and gear. Your goal is basically to postpone the inevitable moment where you're either going to go insane or die. And once you gain insanity, you can't really get rid of it. You just slowly but surely get more crazy as you go until you just completely snap and you have certain skills and attributes but for people who really like storytelling and role-playing this is an opportunity to really exercise your role-playing skills whereas D&D it's more about strategy and technique what spells you have and what gear you have and looking at the maps and you know detecting traps that sort of thing but yeah Call of Cthulhu is quite a different role-playing game experience where it really is just about it's about the story and it's about the interaction and the experience whereas D&D mm-hmm. you're always thinking ooh I just really want to make it to level 20 and I really want to get like my wish spell and I really want to have my own army one day and like you have all these long-term goals there are no long-term right. goals in Call of Cthulhu apart from just right. trying to survive whatever horror you're encountering at that moment yeah, uh, right. The character growth is a lot more subtle in Call of Cthulhu, and I think uh, exactly what you said. I think it brings out the the artistry in role playing, like people that are really into just portraying a character for its own sake as long as it lasts. Like those are the people that are attracted to Call of Cthulhu, and um, you know I've met a lot of great uh, players of of that game. And as a matter of fact, I am currently running. A Call of Cthulhu game. You're running with- a campaign right now? How the hell do you I'm have running- time to run a campaign? Like when I started Wrong Real, I was like I guess I was playing Pathfinder at the time and I wrote one scenario that was like a five page module and I ran a few friends through it. And it took me like a week to come up with the, like to write everything, prepare everything. And I was like, all right. I can't put this much time into something that I can't like share with the outside. I've got to find to make it make use my time for work, or I can't justify investing so much time. But it, if you're a game master, what do they call the game? Like the DMs and Call the, of Cthulhu. Yeah, yeah, the keeper. The keeper. It's a full time job trying to prepare a scenario <laughs> that your friends are just going to rip right through in a matter of hours. Yeah, uh, and I think you you hit on the um, the 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 problem with um, tabletop gaming. At least running a tabletop game is uh, the the time consuming uh, the amount of time that it consumes. Uh, so basically, when I'm when it's my turn to run the game, like we we take turns gotcha. uh, running. The, but what but when uh, when it's my turn to run the game, I'm writing less. I'm using social media less. I'm Exercising less, less, sleeping less. Yeah, you're doing everything exactly. less. Like when I, my, my, the peak of my gaming was when on my last, my fourth year in boarding school, and I would sit in class pretending to pay attention, and it looked like I was taking notes, but I would be writing up modules and like creating NPCs, and I'd be scribbling away fast and furious. But I had enough kind of tucked away in my head where I could create all the stats and that sort of thing. But I was just cranking because I, I, I had a giant Dark Sun campaign going at the time, and we would meet every chance we got. And it's what allowed me to survive the boarding school experience is I had this role-playing game escape to get away from the horrors of being in a all-boy rural boarding school in Virginia. Yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, my experience is kind of similar. Like, I discovered D&D in an all-boys school. Um, it's called Harvard Westlake now, but it was in North Hollywood in California, and um, back then it was just called Harvard. It was before they merged um, Harvard School for Boys and Westlake School for Girls. Uh, so there wasn't much else to do except, you know, role play. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and after after school, so uh, that's when it started. And um, yeah, I think those those habits are are hard to break because if you're an imaginative person, uh, it's really hard to beat that um, immediate creative 
sort of response and um, and uh, and and creation. I guess. Well, I guess also, you you come up with a scenario and a story, and you have an idea of where you want it to go. But your right. players, if they're good players, they might completely torpedo and destroy your module by going left when you think they're going to go right. And like, well, fuck, I spent like two days writing this, <laughs> what would happen if you go this way, but y'all have decided to go here and now I've got to improvise. Because you can't like say, well, I'm sorry, guys, I'm going to have to backtrack a bit. I'm going to have to just change what you did and you're going to go here instead. You have to mm-hmm. allow them that freedom of choice. But with Call of Cthulhu... Because it's, I mean, anywhere from like the 1890s to the 1920s, you're dealing with like money and technology, and so it makes it much more complicated in terms of trying to yeah. maintain control over the game. Whereas in D and D, because it's like a, a fantasy setting, as the DM, you can kind of be a little bit more omnipotent, and omniscient, and kind of control things. I think with a little more, a little more power. Yeah. Um, well, what uh, I think also the number of players uh, matters because there's there if you the more players you have the more time they spend discussing the plan. Like there's always uh, like the the players will plan how to do the thing and then they execute on the thing. And um, that time that they spend discussing as a DM, you're like you know calculating what's going to happen to them if they do that. Um, but uh, in the game that uh, that I'm doing online right now, uh, I, I have two players, um, so possibly a third, and um, you know it's a lot it, it's a lot more fast moving that that way, and uh, and this is how we do it. With uh, all of us are adults, we're working you know full time, and um, we just uh, get together on Tuesday nights, and um, we go from like 7:45 to 10, which is a heartbeat in gaming. If you're playing tabletop RPGs, that's nothing. That's a blink of an eye. The blink of an eye. If we hadn't had our whole lifetimes uh, gaming, we could never pull it off. Um, but I managed to get like two or three scenes in uh, every t- every night we have gaming. It's once a week, and um, you know we do we do pretty good. And eventually the campaign's over <laughs> after a year. Or so well, let's talk then a little bit about the masks of Nyarlathotep. If that, is that how you pronounce how do you pronounce that name? Because I've actually never really said it out loud. But obviously you come across this name quite a bit in the world of Cthulhu. Yeah, uh, that's that's always how I said it um, growing up. But um, I've heard a couple of people saying it's actually Nyarla Hotep. Okay, because um, uh, like Lovecraft wrote a lot of these names specifically to be unpronounceable because he said they're pronounced by alien tongue. So it's like even Cthulhu, but it's supposed to be like two syllables, like Hulu. But he designed them in a way where they're not supposed to be able to be pronounced by us. Right, right. Um, yeah, so I'm, I mean, I'm just going with the way I, I grew up pronouncing them. But um, but yeah, that's the very campaign that I'm running right now. I'm in the, I'm in the middle of. Uh, All right. Well, I've never played this campaign, but what, uh, we did a lot of reading on it online. And it seems like irrespective of what campaign setting you like to play or what game you like to play or what system you like to use, that there's kind of universal agreement that one of the greatest campaigns ever created for any role-playing game is Masks of Nyarlathotep. Yep. Um, now uh, it it is a fantastic. It's a book. I mean, it's it's a like a two hundred page volume uh, that you have to read cover to cover before you ever start running it. Um, but it's totally worth it. It combines a lot of really cool aspects of Lovecraft stories. But the reason I think it made my list of adaptations is because it's got the coolest uh, version of a Lovecraft story called imprisoned with the Pharaohs, which is something Lovecraft wrote for the great Harry Houdini, um, as a ghostwriter. And, uh, I guess later he was credited with the story because it got out that he wrote it. Um, but, um, anyway, it's a pretty cool story it takes place in, in Egypt and, uh, it's all about what they encounter underneath the pyramids and, uh, masks of 
Nyarlathotep uh, was um, a book that was written in 1984 um, for the Call of Cthulhu tabletop game, like you said, and uh, it was written by Larry Dottilio, who worked on a TV show called Babylon 5, and um, he wrote a lot of the He-Man and She-Ra animations, um, and uh, he co-wrote it with a guy named Lynn Willis, who is responsible for the mathematics of the basic role-playing system that Call of Cthulhu uses, that was also in a a game called RuneQuest. For <laughs> for all you guys that are super um, tabletop nerds out there, you get what I'm talking about. Um, this this was basically the answer to Dungeons and Dragons that uh, you know in the late 70s, and uh, it's a great system. It's very bare bones, but it enables the the mathematics to sort of get out of the way and let you role play. So, well, how would I get my hands on one of the original copies? Because I know that it's been revised and like there's like a seventh edition of it that came out came out recently, because uh, they found that some of the um, I guess the portrayals of non-white men in the uh, the story were insensitive or out of step with 2019. But I always it's one of the things where whether it's offensive or not. I always like to get the pure, undiluted experience because, like, I go on eBay and find an original Masks of Nyarlathotep <laughs> copy because I, yes. I do just want to read through the fucking thing because while I don't have time for RPGs these days, as a former DM, I love reading through something like the Tomb of Horrors and just think, ooh, I could really... I, you can just imagine the possibilities of tormenting your players, subjecting them to these these horrible scenarios. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I, uh, you know, I... Bought my, I think I bought mine in the 80s when it came out, but um, I'm sure you can get those on Amazon Marketplace or eBay uh, for not too much money, probably under 50 bucks. Gotcha. Uh, and um, yeah, I, I mean, it is it is a brilliant piece of work, tons of maps. And uh, I mean, I think that the idea of the way Lovecraft wrote his stories, especially his key story, The Call of Cthulhu, which we'll get to, um, is the, the spirit of that is really embodied in this particular campaign for the game because it takes place all over the world. And um, that line, like from the beginning of Call of Cthulhu, where he's like, the inability of the human mind to correlate its contents is the most merciful thing. Uh, and that's exactly how this campaign plays out. Like it, it starts out with a murder and then it gets a little deeper where you just discover the murder's been committed by cultists. And then it takes you to one part of the world, then another part of the world, you find out it's much bigger, and then another part and another part until it's like the the earth is in trouble and you've got to save it, you know? <laughs> now, if your players are familiar with it and they've read it or if they've played the campaign setting before, is it reusable? Like, Is there enough variety or options or paths to go down where someone who's familiar with it can have fun playing it as one of the players? Yeah, absolutely. Because, uh, yeah, this this kind of dovetails into what we, we were talking about at the beginning of the show, um, where all this takes place in the real world, essentially. Um, it's in, it's takes place in the 1920s in this campaign, but it's sort of an invisible world where these uh, cultists have other identities, like they, they're businessmen, waiters, and, uh, you know, uh, dancers and stuff in real, in, in, in life. But then they secretly get together and have these rituals that nobody ever sees where these creatures that are impossible to comprehend come down out of the stars for a few minutes and cavort with them and then vanish again. <laughs> I so, have a feeling if all this shit were real, I probably would become one of these fucking weird occultists. Like, <laughs> it sounds like they have a lot of fun. 
I, yeah, I mean, they've got a lot of staying power because we're still watching movies and writing about them. It's you know, the cult. If uh, if you if you're cast adrift from society, I think the cult is a pretty sexy thing. It's like an instant family. And uh, <laughs> always reminds me. I remember one time. This has happened like when I was like 18. I mentioned that uh, Conan the Barbarian is regarded as a cult classic, and my mother kind of overheard me. She goes, "Well, James, you know that cults are dangerous." I was like, "I know, <laughs> but I'm not talking about like an actual cult. I'm just saying it's got a passionate fan base." <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, right. Most uh, yeah, most uh, movies that are cult classics are basically you know they're great movies, but they only appeal to a small number of people. Exactly. Um, but there's know. not a lot of like naked rituals and drinking of blood and ritualistic sacrifice and all that sort of thing. No, although in Conan the Barbarian, there kind of is. Oh yeah, hell yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe a cult classic is maybe most appropriate when applied to that movie. But speaking of cults, we got quite a few uh, at play in your next choice. Uh, yeah, number four, I have um, the silent movie that was made in 2005. That's right. You heard that right. Um, of The Call of Cthulhu. And um, this is back to those uh, Dark Adventure Radio Theater guys. They produced this movie. And I think what's so fucking brilliant about what they did was they had a very low budget, right, um, to make this movie. What they decided to do was make the movie in the style of silent movies of Lovecraft's period, the period where he was writing. So they had low budget techniques and recreated them to uh, make the scenes and uh, a lot of script editing. I imagine they, it was a labor of love for years for them to get it right. It's pretty concise. I mean, it's and, a 45 uh, minute movie, but yeah. in terms of titles and information that's able to communicate that's not communicated visually, they really had to edit, condense, concise, and bring it down. But maybe now's a good time. Can you do this podcast and our audience a favor by reading us that famous passage that opens up the story? Because you sent me that little recording, and I was like, God damn, like, he did such a good job. I might need to share it. I was like, I'm either going to have to edit it in or have you read the, the full paragraph that, that opens up the story. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of the infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. And I think that that is just, that is such a great way to begin the story, the original story, The Call of Cthulhu, which by the way was rejected from uh, Weird Tales. I think the first time Lovecraft submitted it, because um, it's basically a puzzle, the story itself. And that's one of the things that's so brilliant about it is um, it starts out with like a diary entry and then it tells a framed story about a guy whose uncle died and he left him this chest of things. And in the chest, there's a bunch of puzzle pieces itself. And, and fragments and of statues and drawings. And you get to basically take this archeological journey across the planet trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. And then the payoff is a billion times more horrifying than anything you could ever possibly imagine going into it. Right. And, and you know, he can't stop uh, delving into this mystery because it's fascinating him and he knows it's important um, and people have died. Like he figures out just enough uh, with every sort of layer of the onion to know to, to drive him further. But of course, the closer he gets to the truth, the more horrifying it is. And uh, it ends with a giant monster attack, uh, of course, that is, uh, you know, famous 
<laughs> literature. I'm sure it, it probably helped inspire uh, Gojira and a bunch of other King Kong and a bunch of other seminal, important uh, monster movies. But I couldn't believe how effective this short film was when it came to the actual doorway in which Cthulhu lies dreaming. And it communicates this sense of awe and the cosmos and the unknown and this the idea that this thing's been slumbering for eons beneath the uh, the surface of this little uh, this island that's not seen on any map and i couldn't believe that they actually did accomplish that miraculous trick of portraying the unknowable and this this giant chasm into the unknown and i was like wow like these guys had nothing and somehow they managed to, to pull it off. And so that for me was the biggest miracle. I, mean, I love the staging and I love like the makeup and I love how they did a really good, good job of recreating the, the style and approach of a lot of 1920s movies. But f- they didn't let us down when it came to the actual payoff of the big reveal. And that was like, because obviously if you don't portray that final scene well, the whole thing crumbles and falls to pieces. But somehow yeah. they pulled it off. But I think the best thing they did of all, their poster for the movie is awe-inspiring it's a gorgeous poster in an era of shitty photoshop posters these guys uh they pulled it off they gave us a great portrayal of cthulhu well i I think the poster art follows the style of 1920s movies those giant you know posters with that are painted and you know they they show like several scenes all at once from the thing but yeah it's it's awesome they did such a good job with this thing and uh i highly recommend people to go to go check it out um yeah, again, it's uh, Call of Cthulhu from 2005, and um, yeah. Also, Lovecraft, everyone always criticizes him for being vague on details, and oh, well, it's, it's you're just, someone's looking to a pit, and you say it's nameless horrors, but it's like, I don't know what the fuck a nameless horror looks like. He does describe Cthulhu. I mean, like, he does provide some details and information, so I think sometimes people are unfair to him when it comes to, they're, they're thinking of his earlier stuff, uh, they're thinking of something basically like, um, uh, the case of Charles Dexter Ward, like when they look, when he looks in that well, there he is spare on the details. But Cthulhu, yeah. I mean, you go to any like Lovecraft or comic book convention, or whatever, you see a million stuffed animals, like in the shape of Cthulhu. People love this fucking thing. They create pies with like his face. Like people <laughs> love the just the overall impression of him, and he, it keeps getting ripped off. And maybe, hopefully, one day. A filmmaker of enormous vision. I guess who, if I could pluck any filmmaker from history to do Call of Cthulhu, mm. it would need to be someone like, like I'm thinking because now I'm thinking of silent movies. It would have to be someone like F.W. Murnau or someone like mm. that that could really pull it off. But it would be a, it's a very tricky, challenging adaptation because of what you mentioned, the unconventional structure. It's a lot like Bram Stoker's Dracula, where it's like it's a bunch yeah. of different sources and it's like radio recordings and letters, and it's all be, it's like a rough assembly. Perhaps it is unadaptable. Yeah, um, well, I, I think these guys did a pretty good job, but uh, you know, the um, the adaptation. Yeah, the I mean, the details. I think that's what part of what makes it so believable that's that's one of the things that's so cool about it it's like well any any person that would come across this story in real life would have one or two of these details but it wouldn't mean anything to them um but now we're following the trail of this guy who is assembling the pieces you know to his own detriment obviously but it's like that old fable (laughs) like blind people like touching the different parts of the elephant and like they don't quite know what it is because they're only feeling like the trunk or the tail or whatever and you basically have a lot of blind people feeling this very large elephant and yeah once all the pieces are fully assembled holy shit yeah it, the, the story just goes buck wild yeah it's something it's something you don't want to know but um but yeah i think that's one of the things that makes dracula so effective too uh that where it's like oh only these guys can stop him you know they're the only guys who know all the pieces yeah you know? 
Every journey begins in the mind. A flight of imagination. A vision of what might lie across the universe. Or within the deepest regions of the subconscious. Dr. Edward Pretorius is about to embark on such a journey. It's out of control. You've got to turn it off. Something's coming. What the hell is that? I'm going to kiss you. of Reanimator from beyond. All right, so boom. All right, now we're into the real meat of this show. We're, we're down to your top three. So what do you got for us? Well, um, for number three, I have the movie From Beyond, which um, is one of my favorite horror movies of all time. And uh, it's an adaptation from H.P. Lovecraft's story, From Beyond. Um, it was directed in 1986 by Stuart Gordon, uh, same guy that did Dreams in the Witch House and Castle Freak. And um, I think this was under the Empire Pictures banner. Uh, so it's got a slightly different sheen to it. And um, I think that they were really on a roll at that point. And uh, they cranked out another great movie. It's got Barbara Crampton in it, Jeffrey Combs, uh, s- same writers uh, as in all their films. And um, the Is same it kinetic. Ken Foray as Bubba? What's in the guy from Dawn of the Dead? He's in there yeah, as well. I- yeah, I always said Ken Foree growing up, but I think it's Foray, actually. Yeah, one of my, probably my favorite character from Dawn of the Dead, man. Yeah. He's, he's awesome. Total badass. Yeah, Stuart Gordon has done more than any other filmmaker alive to try and introduce folks to Lovecraft, but sadly, it seems like, at least when it comes to how commercial it is and how much success he's had with like with increasingly like kind of uh, I guess um diminishing returns like I've never even seen Dagon like I've read Dagon twice I love Dagon but I've never even bothered to watch the movie but I love his earlier attempts dabbling with Lovecraft but he just keeps returning to the well over and over and over again dabbling Mm -hmm. in this world and obviously he's interviewed extensively in that documentary Fear of the Unknown but I don't know if his obsession with Lovecraft has helped him or hurt him in his career because perhaps he's so in love with the Lovecraft that it's prevented him from maybe spreading his wings <laughs> into uh, other forms of stories. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, Gordon does have non-Lovecraft material that's really good. There's a movie called Dolls that he did in the 80s that um, it's one of the rare, like my wife does not like horror movies, um, and it's one of the rare movies that we both love um, because it's it's just scary enough to excite her but it's um, it imagine it doesn't have enough. cannibalistic hooker consumption, right? It's 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 nothing as hardcore as that. It's just a really well t- told terror story um, about dolls coming to life and killing people. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but it's a great it's a great movie. Um, but uh, but yeah, from beyond is fantastic, and I think in a lot of ways the both the original story is great and the the scripted movie are great, uh, and um, the 
the fact that there is a device that the mad scientist builds in from beyond, and from beyond that is uh, called a resonator that lets the veil between the regular dimension that we all know and love, the, like the reader knows and loves, with this uh, other sort of astral world where there are these um, monstrous creatures sort of swimming around. Yeah, they're and around course, us all the time, but they don't know we're here and we're, we don't know they're there because we're on like separate vibrations, basically. Exactly. Um, and uh, yeah, the unfortunate thing when uh, the machine is activated is that, yeah, sure, we can see into this other world and that's great, but they can also see into our world and that's when the problems begin. Um, but, uh, yeah, if, if you guys, uh, if you have the, um, the DVD, uh, of, of From Beyond, there's an absolute gem of comedy, um, in the Stuart Gordon commentary where he's talking about recording this movie <laughs> in Italy. And, um, he was working with Fellini's, uh, sound people, uh, and, um, and, and they hated having to actually record live dialogue. They like to dub everything. Right, and they were they were like talking and and chewing gum and stuff on the on the set, and Stuart Gordon was like really laying into them, going, "Quit it, you know, this is showing up on the soundtrack." And and they're just like, oh, "I work with Fellini, and he never told me to shut up." And exactly. He's like, well, I'm not Fellini, and they're like, "You can say that again." <laughs> <laughs> nice. But uh, well, but for yeah. Joe Bob Briggs, this is actually his favorite Stuart Gordon Lovecraft adaptation because obviously everyone's going to talk about Reanimator because it's just a, it was such a beloved cult classic. But I think From Beyond is definitely the wilder, more perverse movie. I don't think I like it more as a movie overall, but it definitely goes to some crazy extremes. Just the idea of like this character, Edward, how we see him like lounging in a black silk night robe at the beginning with dragons on. It's like, who is this guy? Like, does he run a Turkish brothel or is he a scientist? Like, who is this fucking guy? He's such a sleazy guy. Scientist slashed. Playboy. Yeah, exactly. He's a total <laughs> swinger, but Barbara Crampton obviously gets to unleash her her wild side in this with like her her S and M side and her dominatrix side. It's just it's a it's a it's a very sexual horror movie in a lot of ways, but it's also super gory with heads being torn off and mutations and people like kind of melting on one side and becoming monstrosities and this idea of like kind of merging with it, like your exposure to this other reality, turning you into something other. And it's like, it's a, it's a, an evolution, but at the same time, you still hunger for human flesh and sexual gratification. And yeah, I can, I get why they had to make so many cuts just to get an R rating because it's just, this is one of those movies that makes people feel really dirty when they're watching it, but I don't mind feeling a little dirty. I, I kind of enjoy it. Yeah, I, I think for those brave enough, it's uh, it's a it's a even more fun cinematic experience. And I think Stuart Gordon, I have to take my hat off to him because he he has been pushing the envelope with these horror movies um, in his whole career. Like he's just trying to do something more and more challenging to either rate or watch. You know, because um, he loves that. He loves shocking people, and that's great. That's that's one of the things about horror. But so. in interviews, he seems like such a, like a wholesome kind of articulate guy. He speaks. It's not like he sits around dropping a bunch of f bombs and talking about disgusting stuff. He strikes you as like a librarian or a college professor. But when it's time to make a movie, he's ready to get buck wild. Yeah, I'm sure you know, but uh, just so your listeners know, I mean, usually dealing with horror writers or filmmakers, um, you know, they are often the nicest, calmest, most supportive people you will ever meet because they work all this shit out in their writing or, or their uh, filmmaking. You know, it's it's all out there on the screen, so they're completely 
like at peace with their dark side. Yeah, like David Cronenberg um, is one of the most like calm, meditative, professorial people I've ever listened to. I'm like, oh my god, like I can just, I'm in, I'm in awe. I can listen to you all day. But it, his movies obviously take you to very forbidden places. Yes, love Cronenberg, um, and I'm so glad you mentioned it because I think From Beyond is probably the most Cronenbergian uh, movie on this on oh, this yeah. list. It's, uh, it's all in on body horror. The idea of like your pineal gland slowly growing and extending and eventually protruding through your forehead, but yeah, that's straight out of the world of Cronenberg. Yeah, yeah, um, but yeah, great, great movie. Highly recommend it. Um, it's uh, it's just it's beautiful. And a classic Cronenberg, I mean not Cronenberg, classic Lovecraftian fashion. It ends with madness and laughter and insanity. And I was like, all right, well this is actually like a true Lovecraft ending, etc. So yeah, I, I really enjoy From Beyond. I've only seen it a few times, but I kind I kind of like it a little bit more each time I visit. The only I guess flaw is that they ran out of money, and so the some of the special mm-hmm. effects just aren't finished. And so right. like that looks a little pathetic but then there are other special effects that look incredible but it's sadly the movie's kind of hamstrung by some some problems along those lines indeed um but at least it wasn't made in that period where cg was starting to creep into movies maybe there's one cg effect that i can think of but uh, most of it's practical makeup effects yep. so they look pretty strong uh, but um, but anyway, yeah. There's a there's also there's a, one of my one of my favorite moments uh, of Lovecraft stories is in the in the written story from Beyond, where uh, if you're reading it, it's a really great moment because it's the mad scientist talking to the narrator, and uh, he's activated the resonator, so these creatures are are kind of starting to come into sight, and the mad scientist goes, look. Over your shoulder, there's one right now, you know, and it's just like if you're hearing this read to you, you you're you instinctually like look over your shoulder and it makes it so real. It's just it's yeah, awesome. a little fourth wall breaks. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, next up, what do you got for us? Uh, number two, I know this is an unpopular choice, but I fucking love this movie. Um, it's called The Resurrected and it was made in 1991. And this is a Dan O'Bannon joint. So he's the guy that directed um, Return of the Living Dead and he wrote Alien and uh, you know, he's got a long, long history of loving this sort of material. And, and worked and, on Jodorowsky's Dune before it got, un, like, before it met its untimely demise. So yeah, Dan O'Bannon indeed. had a fascinating career. Yeah, I, I absolutely love his stuff. Oh, Dead and Buried. Um, I think that's that's his too. Um, but, uh, but yeah, uh, The Resurrected um, is a movie that um, it does have its problems because the, the movie, as I understand it, was taken away from O'Bannon at some point by the film company and they decided to package it as uh, sort of a comedy horror movie, which was really strong at the time. And um, I believe that O'Bannon just wanted to have it be a straight horror movie. So the first two acts, like if, if you take it as a three-act structure type thing, the first two acts are sort of comical and loose. And, um, you know, there's some moments that kind of make you giggle in the movie, um, as I'm sure the film company intended. But the last third is insanely scary yeah. um, when, when they're down in the tunnels. I was really caught off guard by how effective the last third was because I was watching it, and I've never read The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. It's one of my closet embarrassments that I've never read the longest Lovecraft story. I know that when he wrote it, he was so he was, he was very hard on him about his own work, but he basically put it in a drawer, and it was never published during his lifetime. Mm-hmm. And then it was published as part of like one of the first big collection of short stories. And so I should read it, and I'm definitely curious now because I love the overall premise, but as I was watching the movie, I was like, wow, this is his number two. 
And then I got to the end. I was like, oh, okay, I'm getting it now because I'm actually terrified because you've got this network of tunnels and you've only got like matches and like dying flashlights and you've got these pits. We keep talking about the nameless horrors. This is the heavyweight champion of the, of the nameless horrors from Lovecraft lore. And they keep like coming out or people are falling in because it's dark. And it was definitely, it was definitely getting to me. Yeah, I think uh, it's got that combination that you mentioned earlier of it having like really good jump scares. Uh, uh, the reveals are just like, whoa, you know, there's something alive in that pit. Uh, and that's pretty scary. But then comes the realization as to like, oh, this is an experiment from when these tunnels were originally used in the 1700s. And this thing's been alive in there ever since. Like, how horrible is that? Like, you know, he's just living in a, a little like vertical coffin. Like, it's ah, it's insane to think about. Well, give people the overall premise. I feel like of all of Lovecraft's story concepts, this one's pretty goddamn cool. Yeah, um, I think that uh, it's it's a really cool idea. It's it's basically um, a, a modern man who uh, starts finding out about his past, and he has this ancestor who was accused of rich of witchcraft, who looks exactly like him, and um, he starts to become estranged from his own family, and um, and in that estranged behavior, it starts to become apparent to the reader or the watcher, if you're watching the movie, that. It's not the original dude anymore. It is the old guy. Um, and he's somehow found found a way to immortality or mind control or something. You're not really sure what. Um, but um, I just I, I just love the the reason this made the list and not um, the uh, Richard uh, the Robert Corman um, or Roger Corman movie, uh, The Haunted Palace, uh, which is also a version of the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Uh, is just because the ending is so visceral and so great and so gripping. Um, and and uh, Chris Sarandon's performance in um, in The Resurrected is, I think, is fantastic. You've it's also my got Hawk the Slayer in there as the hero of the story. I mean, for people That's who right. know, Hawk the Slayer was like the first of the 80s fantasy, kind of cheesy, like if you like Krull and like Beastmaster and those kind of movies, Hawk the Slayer was really like the, the first one on that front. But he's also in Full Metal Jacket when he's talking about like, oh, I want pictures of Anne Margaret. And like he says something like, like, about like he wants the pictures up close he wants to see morning dew or so, something really inappropriate but he that line always uh kind of got me but when i saw him pop up and this like oh i know exactly who this is but yeah that he is hawk the slayer forever oh by the gods i now i know thanks for mentioning that i knew i knew him from somewhere but i wasn't sure where uh but yeah he's got a familiar looking face and that's who he is and you got one of the stars of fast times of richmond high the guy who knocks up jennifer jason lee he's like his investigator who slips into the pit and so uh yeah you got some recognizable faces in here yeah, Romanus. Yeah, he's he's great. Um, yeah, it's it's a great cast. Uh, I, it's a, a little takes a little um, tolerance to get through the first uh, the first part, but I think it's it's totally worth it. Well, I'm gonna um, put this one next on my to do list as uh, my Lovecraft stories to read because I feel like I've read whenever I'm like in the mood, I'm something like, all right, well, let me let me look at like one of the seven page ones so I can just kind of rip right through it real quickly. But I think the length has always been what kept me at bay. But I think it's time for me to do do the deep dive and just uh, and really sink my teeth into it. Enjoy. Um, yeah, I don't know why I kept it in a drawer for so long, um, except 
that maybe he just thought he could polish it more. That's uh, something that writers do often where it's like, yeah, it's good, but it's not, doesn't do quite what I wanted it to do. So I'll return to it later. Or maybe it was um, too long for a single installment in like in Weird Tales. Cause I know like, I read online that when it eventually did get published, it was in a bridged form over two different months. And ooh. so perhaps it wasn't like a, such like a bite-sized chunk that he was like accustomed to selling to these magazines. Right. Yeah. That makes sense too. Um, but yeah, the uh, the the old family history, the evil family history, is something that Lovecraft is a theme that Lovecraft embraced many many times, and of course that comes from his heroes. Like that's all over Poe, like the fall of the House of Usher, and um, I think uh, Lovecraft used it in the Rats in the Walls, and you know the strange case of Arthur German or whatever. It's got a really long title, but basically it's Arthur German. Uh, and and this movie, this is this is probably the most famous version also, of that. Also, having ancestors whose goal was to basically summon down demons from the stars to do all sorts of horrible things like yeah, yeah it's uh once again the, the, it all ties together beautifully and I, I just i remain in awe of this shared universe and also just the fact that we'll never have a complete picture but toward the end what i would like to hear from you just because i'm just such a fan of this stuff is like your favorite short stories by authors who are not lovecraft because i want to start reading mm. some of like the robert block stories and Oh damn! I don't have my iPad on me. There's another author who I, w- I want to get into, who's like right there alongside these guys that I- I'm blanking off the top of my head. But I- I'll-, I'll send you a DM about it. In any okay. case, any final thoughts on the Resurrected before we move on to your number one? Um, yeah, no, I think that about covers it. So your number number one, I'm assuming, is Call Girl of Cthulhu from 2014. <laughs> I've heard of that. I haven't seen it yet, but it's on my list. <laughs> um, no, it's Reanimator. <laughs> Hey, Dr. Hill, I'm very disappointed in you. You steal the secret of life and death, and here you are, trysting with the bubble-headed co-ed. You're not even a second-rate scientist. Oh, Mr. West, I'm actually glad to see you. It saves me the trouble of having to send for you. You'll never get credit for my discovery. Who's going to believe a talking head? Get a job in a sideshow. I wonder why an intelligent young man like yourself should make such a foolish, fatal mistake of coming here to challenge me. Oh, I have a plan. Um, yeah, 85, uh, unrated when it came out in the theaters. Uh, I ran from my parents' house in Westwood to uh, Westwood Village to watch this at the United Artists Theater. And I came in and my mind was totally blown by what I was seeing. Um, this uh, movie is so entertaining. I, I can't even, it, it, the, the performances are driven. The camera work is kinetic as hell. Um, I, I just, it was coming at me from so many different angles. It was like, oh, it's great material. It's great performance, it's great camera work. It's funny, it's horrific. You know, it's it's got everything. Um, and. Uh, it really, it blew me out of my seat. And, you know, I used to do uh, movie reviews for my high school newspaper. Nice. And this is one that I wrote about. Yeah. 
And um, yeah, this is back in the old days when uh, you could send away for a press kit and uh, Empire at Pictures, which put this out, like sent me this press kit with like everybody's headshots and like a bunch of stills from the movie and everything. It was really awesome. Um, but um, but yeah, uh, Reanimator, a classic. Uh, I mean, even people who don't know horror movies uh, know that it's a classic. Absolutely. I've seen it many times, but for this preparation for this episode, I decided to return to the last drive-in with Joe Bob Briggs and watch his version of Reanimator. Where he's bra- I mean, some people might object to the idea of breaking up these movies into segments where you have commercials, but his commentary and his analysis is so goddamn funny. He does... A breakdown and analysis of the human brain at one point. I was like, what the fuck's going on here? But like, Joe Bob, he gets out this diagram and he's showing all the different pieces and what they all do. I'm like, this is just awe inspiring. I couldn't believe how in depth his breakdown of the movie became. And it just made the movie feel fresh and new all over again. Oh, man. Um, yeah, I, I have yet to see Joe Bob's version of this, but I, I will see it right after we're done here. <laughs> yeah, and he's got a big special coming up for Christmas coming up in like in a week or two. So I, I'm going to try and uh, tune in as it's playing live. But obviously, this movie's uh, rather notorious for some of the sexual encounters in it. Obviously, Barbara Crampton, who looks astonishing in this, she becomes the object of affection for a decapitated kind of plagiaristic <laughs> scientist and apparently a great bit in the DVD's audio commentary where they're all watching the movie and the scene comes up I mean it's full frontal nudity she's lying on this slab screaming and this head's kind of licking at her hungrily and everything and everybody doing the commentary kind of gets real quiet and someone, <laughs> someone says something um, look at those lights and Crampton says look at those breasts and then everybody starts laughing and so on and so forth but she made a deal where he could show her boobs a lot but he only had four seconds to show her entire body but uh, <laughs> she, was, she was a good sport and she played along for one of the most notorious scenes in horror history yeah well you know I mean Barbara Crampton uh, I mean she I think she probably made the bulk of her money in uh, daytime s- uh, soap operas yeah she was like in um, Days like, of Her Lives for like six days years of yeah, I actually I worked on the on the music business affairs department of that, and I was like, oh, Barbara Crampton's in this one. <laughs> what? Um, but um, but man, uh, she has been absolutely fearless as an actor. Um, you know, in the performances she's made, starting with Reanimator, and um, you know, just I don't think there's anything she's refused to do, and she's signed on for a lot of great projects. Even she's lately. in Body Double, Brian De Palma's movie. Like her, yep. all of her dialogue scenes sadly got cut, so she's like, so y'all just kept the scene where I'm like cheating on my husband you threw out everything else like it actually was like a part before but there she is her first movie role is body double and she was doing like like what's that spring break one that she did uh, oh hang on she uh, i just by coincidence happened to have um mrskin.com open on my computer already hey. yeah what, what i mean I, I can't imagine how that happened but um yeah <laughs> fraternity vacation from 1985 oh, and i've seen like, that i didn't know she was in that <laughs> yeah she, she the scene where tim robbins and his buddy get into bed naked together with these two girls that are changing in the bathroom and the girls are talking about how they finally found a cure for genital herpes and tim robbins and his buddy are like <gasps> they run out of there screaming that that is barbara crampton Oh man, um, yeah, that's awesome. I, yeah, I can't wait to see it again. <laughs> she's in Chopping Mall and all, all kind, all kinds of wild stuff. Yeah, Chopping Mall, right? And um, yeah, she she was. I mean, recently she was in Your Next, and um, she was in. Uh, oh yeah, that Into the Dark series that's on Hulu. She was in one of those. One of the yeah, the. She's enjoying a little bit of a a revival in her career where suddenly she's popping up all 
over the place in a bunch of yeah. different horror movies. Like if you just look in the in the, la- the last few years, she was um, yeah, as you mentioned, Into the Dark, but also she was in Puppet Master, The Littlest Reich, which is a, a which was written by S. Craig Zoller, uh-huh. and she was in Beyond the Gates, where we had the producer and and writer Stephen Scarlatta come on the podcast to talk about it. So yeah, she's I popping, really like that one. Yeah, yeah, she's she's popping up all over the place these days. Yep. Yep. Uh, yeah, she's great. Um, and she's also been a really big proponent for horror in general, which I really appreciate. Sometimes, you know, uh, actors that are early in their careers that are in horror movies kind of revile it later because they've like gone on to more heady, more literary stuff. Um, but she totally embraces it. And yeah. uh, I, I agree. Well, my only criticism of Crampton is that I got in a little trouble recently on Twitter referring to her as a scream queen. And one of her kind of white knight do-gooder defenders was like, Barbara Crampton hates that term scream queen. I was like, well, there's like a show called Scream Queens and people are, no, it's like we're getting mad about being called like a Bond girl. It's like there's yeah. nothing but love and adoration and respect. And so like Janet Lee is a great Scream Queen or that, you know, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is a great Scream Queen. It's not to suggest they are incapable of doing anything other than being in horror movies, but being a great, being a great Scream Queen, I feel like is like, like having like held like a belt, like in like the UFC or like professional boxing. Like I feel like it is a, it is a badge of honor, but apparently she gets annoyed by the term scream queen you know well i i mean i agree with you 100 uh i think it should be a badge of honor but um you know obviously everybody's entitled to their opinion uh but one of the you know things about twitter is it's kind of hard to express your 360 degree vision that you're you're pushing forward you just have to kind of select your words really carefully Absolutely. and it's like yeah yeah no I, I know what you mean but that's not what i meant you know uh but that's i guess that's the art of uh of the app but there's so much beautiful stuff in this movie where I love horror movies that introduce a lot of theatricality and Jeffrey Combs when he's like, I must say, Dr. Hill, I'm very disappointed in you. You steal the secret of life and death and here you are trysting with a bubble-headed co-ed. You're not even a second-rate scientist. Who's going to believe a talking head? Get a job in a sideshow. I mean, he just <laughs> is chewing the scenery. In that, but also, but obviously the, the villain of this uh, was a David Gale who plays a make. He's equally Gale. theatrical and he's equally incredible. And you just have these two almost like they're not hammy because it's totally it works and it fits in the film, but it's a very like strong, broad, over the top performance by both of them. And as they mm-hmm. they clash, it's incredible. And it's just fucking room full of zombies going berserk. And of course, earlier you have Arnold Schwarzenegger's stunt double going on a murderous rampage, throwing people all over the place. I mean, this yes. movie is just bananas from start to finish. But it's so goddamn funny and it's so fun. And I love like the neon opening credits, even though they totally stole the music from Psycho and the score. It still yeah. kind of it kind of fits. I, so, I was even, even I knew nothing about music rights in the '80s, but I was scratching my head when when they when I heard the music. I was like, Wait, yeah, it's like yeah, you like you change like three notes and like it's different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, man, yeah, it's it's such a great movie. But I think yeah, the theatricality of the performances. I'm glad you brought that up because. In kind of like Mandy that came out recently, like Love everything Mandy. is over the top. Yeah, so it works. Um, if if like only one guy's over the top, then it stands out. Then it's kind of a sore thumb. But in this movie, everybody's at the same level, and I don't know how to explain like how Reanimator came together so well. But it was just, you know, Gordon was probably at his most driven, and you know these actors you'd never seen before were very good and it was their first performance and everybody was on the same card and they had just the right amount of money to do it and i, I don't know it just it was just like a perfect trinity of, of stars and the actors all had a lot of uh like 
experience in theater and they enjoy doing lengthy, extensive rehearsals. And anytime you have actors who are willing to like on their own dime spend like three weeks rehearsing for the movie, you're going to get some good stuff. They're going to develop a shorthand and camaraderie and chemistry, which you just don't get if you show up and you just walk into the set and you're meeting your co-star for the first time. And yeah, that's another thing Joe Bob points out of how between art house people from the world of theater in New York versus those from Chicago, he much prefers those from Chicago. And this is the, the Chicago theater scene that you're seeing on display in Reanimator. Yeah, that's interesting. I, yeah, I didn't know they were from Chicago. That's um, that's that's cool. Yeah, it was certainly a great troupe that he got for this. And um, yeah, I, actually, I wanted to mention one thing about Reanimator is that, it, of course, it's... It's my favorite Lovecraft adaptation. It's an adaptation of Herbert West Reanimator written by Lovecraft. And um, it's also kind of an adaptation of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, you could, I mean, apart from the name Reanimator, you could just say this is like a modern day retelling of Frankenstein. But of course, some people draw the distinction. Oh, well, with Frankenstein, they assembled a bunch of pieces into one body. Or here, they're just reanimating dead tissue. That's not much of a distinction. <laughs> you still right. have a mad scientist doing his thing. So yeah, I find that I've, I've never read, read Herbert West reanimate. I listened to like the book on tape. Uh, there's all these great YouTube channels where you have horror fans just reading Lovecraft stories. So sometimes I'll use them just to kind of help nod off a night, just hearing all these grim tales of the macabre kind of like droning on in my ear. And so that's the closest I've come to reading it. But yeah, I, I have no problem thinking of it as a remake of Frankenstein. And well, I, yeah, I think uh, if my memory is correct, I think Lovecraft wrote this as installments in a magazine. And um, as a result, it was because he was, I think uh, he was shunned from writing anything too gory like he usually did. He instead went the opposite way. Like he went totally over the top and tried to make it as gory as possible to shock the editor and, and the readers. Um, but uh, And it works and it comes across beautifully in this movie. <laughs> Absolutely. It's it's a genuine horror classic. And in the 80s, the 80s is probably the best decade for horror comedies. I can't think of any other decade that even comes close. We have that beautiful combination of like irony and wit and humor and gore and sex and nudity and all that coming together so beautifully. With mm. I mean, It's just so, and Reanimator's definitely in the mix as one of the strongest horror comedies of all time by far. Yep, yep. And going backwards through the list, like I think Reanimator and From Beyond, um, uh, Stuart Gordon sort of got the more and more serious vibe going in his movies uh, with uh, Dreams in the Witch House and Castle Freak be- being the most serious of, of that of that group that, that he did. Yes, yeah, maybe that maybe that was his critical failing is that he started taking it more getting more and more invested because obviously Lovecraft stories are incredibly earnest in their tone. Yeah. But that the, the devil funny. may care flavor of Reanimator is what makes it so un, like just unimaginably hysterical time after time after time. And, you, you, and also Jeffrey Combs almost kind of got like it's like a double edged sword where he became so renowned for this part. He's forever associated with it. And so everybody wants him to be wildly over the top and theatrical. He's like, well, I'm a really good actor. I'm capable of doing other things. Like, but you see like in Star Trek or whatever, he's always being people always want to get that strangeness to come out of him. But as we've seen Castle Freak. He can go dark, and I thought he played dark very successfully in Castle Freak. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, very straight, dramatic role, and um, yeah, he's great. Uh, and as a matter of fact, um, you know, in another Masters of Horror episode, he plays Edgar Allan Poe yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, himself. And uh, uh, yeah, I think it's The Black Cat, but um, it's it's a bunch of Poe stories that he sort of weaves into an autobiographical narrative, um, and he's really good in that, and he kind of looks like Poe, so I think he pulls it off. 
Hell yeah. No, he, uh, he's, a, he's a marvelous performer and deserves, uh, yeah, I guess uh, at this point, I mean, the movie's 34 years old and people are still fucking talking about it. So he's made yeah. his mark one way or another, but at least he's had some some other success with like Star Trek and so on and so forth. But as we start drawing things down to a close real quick, I just want to grab my iPad because I, I want to look up one author's name that I wanted to ask you about just to see if you know anything about. Yeah. Because I am determined to learn as much about the shared universe across his correspondence. What do you know about Clark Ashton Smith? Because I yeah. keep coming across his name as one of the major disciples and acolytes of Lovecraft alongside Lieber or Liber. I never quite know if it's Fritz Liber or Lieber, but Liber. You, can, you can feel that. When you're reading like those Fafford and Grey Mouser stories, you're like, woo, there's some really cool atmospheric horror at play. And Robert mm-hmm. E. Howard, like there's certain so something about those writers from the twenties and thirties, they went to the dark side with adult dark fantasy in ways that no writers a lot of writers are unwilling to or afraid to go. But Clark Ashton Smith, I'm just now encountering his name in my preparation for this. I keep bumping into it, so I, I just don't know where to start. Yeah, um, well I think uh, getting a collection of Clark Ashton Smith's short stories is probably the best place to start. I would consider him mainly a fantasy writer, although he definitely wrote horror and uh, he wrote a lot of poetry and um, he created a lot of two-dimensional art. Also, he's kind of a Renaissance guy like Clive Barker. Uh, he exactly right. Like he's one of Lovecraft's friends and they corresponded a lot. And um, he uh, was also a recluse like Lovecraft was, um, but he ended up becoming less famous uh, later in life. Uh, I'm not really sure why that is, because he's brilliant. I would say he's probably a better stylist than Lovecraft. But uh, he, I think the most famous thing, the, the most enduring thing that he probably created was uh, the Book of Ebon, I think it's pronounced, um, which it appears in like Dario Argento movies. And um, it's one of the, you know, these dread books like the Necronomicon that floats around from work to work and uh, inspires people to do powerful or evil things. Um, but uh, but yeah, he, he kind of wrote uh, fantasy like uh, like Robert e. Howard, except Robert E. Howard is more of like the, you know, sword swinging muscle man um, with sorcery sort of sprinkled into it, but it was kind of never explained. Whereas uh, Clark Ashton Smith was the other way around. It was mainly about sorcerers. And, uh, you know, occasionally they're like, they're like these supernatural swordsmen that appear and, and do incredible things. But uh, Smith had a fantastic imagination, and I highly recommend to try some of his stuff out there and uh, check it out. Very cool. Well, he is, he's going on my – it's always getting a little longer, but I'm always adding more authors to my, to my list that I want to explore. And it's funny how like what I've found is that in the, over the last like year and a half where my, my readings really kind of – I've kicked it up a notch. I enjoy film and television so much more when I'm breaking it up with great reading experiences like – I feel like if you're just watching film and television all the time, you get so like movied out and so burnt out. But if you're playing games or reading comics or reading books, it just gives you you know variety is the spice of life. And I just I find that I have such a better appreciation for dialogue and great narrative and that sort of thing. So you know horror, fantasy, and sci-fi I've just been gorging myself. Although right now I'm just reading Elmore Leonard. I'm reading La Brava, which is all about Miami Beach and photography and movies and crooks and that sort of thing. So but mm-hmm. I, I just um, my, my love of fiction is definitely on the rise right now. Maybe that's just a sign of getting becoming an an older more mature gentleman but while we're on the subject of books where can people find your book if they want to take a crack at some of your tales of the macabre well um 
you can either find me on Twitter, which will direct you to uh, my book sale on Amazon, but the title of the book is The Sound of Fear, and it's uh, my name is Victor H. Rodriguez, uh, if you want to pick it up. Um, but uh, my website is VH Rodriguez, so it's V-H-R-O-D-R-I-G-U-E-Z dot WordPress com and um, you'll find everything you need to know there including in a few days possibly after this podcast airs I'm not sure this will come um, up and I think this will probably go up what's today today is Saturday I think it's gonna go up Thursday so okay so it'll be on it'll be up there before this airs um, and in the tradition of ghost you know the British Victorian tradition of ghost stories for Christmas I'm gonna put one of the 12 stories that's in my book. Uh, up on my website for free. Oh, nice. Um, Very cool. And it's a ghost story, and it's definitely written in a Lovecraftian style. So uh, I hope you all enjoy it. And um, yeah, coincidentally, this morning, uh, while I was getting ready for this this show, uh, I got my creative nonfiction essay, uh, Save Yourself, which is a, it's a compare and contrast between John Carpenter's works and H.P. Lovecraft's works, accepted in um, this uh, uh, upcoming magazine called... Um, Speculative City Magazine. And Very cool. Uh, it's Congratulations. Be... Thanks. Um, yeah, it's the first creative nonfiction essay I've ever published. I'm very proud of it. And uh, yeah, it'll be out in that magazine for winter 2020. Just to gotcha. get <laughs> yeah, how right. slow so publishing works. Tease. <laughs> yes, um, but I'm very honored to be a part of that magazine because it's um, you know it's sort of a, a bit more highbrow than uh, than what I'm used to. Now uh, moving but... forward. More short stories, nonfiction, a novel. What what, you, what is your next frontier that you're going to explore? Uh, I'm going to be writing a novel next, and um, I'll release details as they become available. But um, you know, speaking of audio, uh, I'm going to release an audio version with me reading all the stories in my book sometime this year. It'll be on my website, and um, I'll also have a digital version of The Sound of Fear available. So uh, yeah, that and a couple of couple of short stories that I'm not really sure when are being published because other people are doing it uh, will all be uh, available. Just uh, follow me on on Twitter and um, you can find me there on uh, at Dime Store Caesar. So it's at D-I-M-E-S-T-O-R-E-C-A-E-S-A-R. And that's uh, my address on Twitter or Instagram. Very cool. Well, I've thoroughly loved and enjoyed our two topics we've done in Wrong Reel, and I know we've been debating some possible future topics, whether it's adaptations of Greek mythology. Mm. I can't remember what some of the other ones were, but I look forward to whatever our next frontier might be that we will explore. But anything in the world of fantasy, horror, sci-fi, shared universes, etc., that's all my, my bread and butter. And when they allows us to dip our toes into the world of fiction and role-playing games and video games, so much the better because... I love all that shit, but I very rarely get a chance to discuss it on Wrong Reels. So I always relish those opportunities. Oh, man. Uh, well, James, thank you so much for having me back. Uh, I, you know, I've been looking forward to this all week. And, you know, now that it's almost over, I'm a little saddened. I have a little sadness in my heart. But, uh, man, it's uh, it's an adrenaline pumped experience uh to record with you and and i thank you well if you ever want to start a, a, a splinter podcast on the side where we uh do like a call of cthulhu or D D campaign i got people do do campaigns as podcasts and i'm like wow but you like when you're playing the game you're playing the game and you're you have certain goals and objectives but if you're doing a podcast of your game mm. you have to do the game plus make it entertaining and fast-paced and interesting so it right. makes it 
it, it changes the, how the game unfolds and how you would write it, etc. So I, it's one of those things where my gaming itch only really gets scratched now when I find a really great game like Witcher Three. Witcher Three just blew my mind recently, and I, I played my way through it. But what oh, yeah. you, but what you don't get is the malleability of the story where it can quite literally go any direction at any given time. You are confined to the limits of the game, and that, that is the world that you can explore. But with right. D&D, you can explore other dimensions. Or if you can just keep the fundamental rules intact and reinvent the entire setting if you want. Like you, there, there are no limits to your imagination. So I do really miss that aspect of tabletop RPGs where you're truly only limited by your own vision as a storyteller and no video game will ever be able to fully capture that. So yeah, it's an itch that I probably would never be able to fully scratch again, but I did, I did the deep dive for decades. I I definitely got my gaming, my gaming covered for a good long while. Yeah. It's, it's hard to to replicate the magic of those days, but um, you know, it's interesting. I feel like technology is, still catching up with tabletop role-playing games in the way that, you know, when you first encounter them, like you're 12, 13, 14 years old, and your imagination is still really, like it hasn't been pushed down by school studies or, you know, responsibilities or your college major or whatever yet. And you're really wide open to the vision of this world and you can picture it in your mind so easily. Uh, And I think that virtual reality um, is becoming as close to that as, you know, technology creators can get as far as entertainment. So I think that the the future, and of course, having worked in video games um, for years, a lot of those guys that are designing games are old D&D players. They definitely come from that school. And uh, yeah, I think that we're going to see a lot of the details that you find in in tabletop role-playing games revisited in the future of technology. Well, they definitely keep getting better. Like, if you look at the Intellivision Dungeons & Dragons game from way back when, which at the time, like in 83 or whatever, I thought was just awe-inspiring. I was like, this is fucking amazing! It's just pixels on a screen with, like, a bow and arrow. I mean, it was pathetic, but I thought it was awe-inspiring. And now we're in the world of Witcher 3, where you're making love Mm -hmm. to Yennefer on the back of a stuffed unicorn. It's like, oh, all right, (laughs) we've come quite a way. So if you've got that in video games now... The sky's the limit for like the next 20 years. Yeah. Um, well, you know, uh, yeah, somebody else I, I want to recommend. I'm reading this book right now by uh, a writer artist named uh, Junji Ito, a uh, Japanese horror guy. Like he did Uzumaki and Gyo. Uh, oh. I've got my copy of Uzumaki right here, ready to go. Oh, I have not cracked it open yet, but I've, I've ordered it. It's in my hand, and I'm just uh, I'm saving it for a special occasion. Uh, one of my favorites, but uh, Ito, I would say, um, definitely inspired by Lovecraft and Cronenberg. I like nice. his stuff. Yeah, and I, I love the way like he uses his art style to kind of support the narratives that, that he's writing. But he's, an, he's a great writer and, um, and a fantastic artist, so... Highly recommend. I mean, on any given page that I open to, it's nothing but lurid, horrific, and sexual imagery. So I look forward to being properly disturbed when I finally do the deep dive into his stuff. But we hope y'all have enjoyed this episode. We hope you've given some interesting things to think about, talk about, read about, play, watch, whatever. And uh, yeah, just remember to leave the podcast a rating and review. All that good stuff is very helpful to the podcast. Subscribe to the podcast. And if you want some more content in the near uh, in the near future, hunt down my YouTube channel, Geek with James Hancock where I've been trying to post anywhere from like three to five or six videos a week and so on and so forth so give me a subscribe there as well also got wrong real merchandise available on the site there's a link in the show notes below but can't thank you enough for your ongoing support but more importantly as always onwards and upwards ain't like it used to be but uh, it'll do you know how to whistle don't you Steve 
You just put your lips together and blow. 